Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 181 Home Goblin Coast Far Harbor Lone, long, mournful wail of a foghorn blasted out of the lighthouse at the end of a pier. As the sailor's ship approached, workers paused in their work as they looked upon the ship with two strange contraptions on the sides slowly came into the dock with the pier. Deep slow, Aston, Chief Matt yelled as they approached the parallel to the pier. Keep us steady. The paddle wheels came to a stop before they started to reverse direction, churning the sea with splashes of whitish, and the crews on the deck tossed out mooring ropes to the surprised-looking workers on the pier who quickly grabbed the ropes and the harbour-master came panting down the pier, yelling happily, They're ours! Our ship! Stop all engines, Chief Matt roared, as the ship's speed slowed to a crawl and the noisy rumbling engines died down and the turning paddle wheels stopped their movement. The crew on board yelled and cheered loudly as the ship came to rest against the pier. We are home! Good work, people! Chief Matt grinned as he watched the men and women hugging each other and cheering. Drop the gangway. Division leaders to ensure their areas are properly secured and equipment powered down and prepped for transportation. Chief Matt, permission to come aboard. A voice came out from the lowered gangway as Matt saw Commander Ford standing there with his staff. He quickly came down to the helm and saluted the commander. Sir, welcome on board the floating wreck. The Chief Matt greeted the XO, returned the salute before saluting the flag tied to the mast. Apologies for not having a welcoming party, sir. It's okay. The captain sent me over to take a look at how the harbour and progressing when we received word of your return. Ford grinned. Looks good. Well, the islanders do know how to build a ship, Chief Matt said. It was built pretty solid, and we might need to replace certain portions of the ship. He gestured to the paddle wheels. Well, R&R are still coming out with the proper screw propulsion systems. We have to make due with these first and also better bracing for the engines and more sturdy design for the paddle wheels. Luckily, the sea is calm enough to not break the wheels. I would seriously advise till we have some steel frames for the wheels not to go out to deep sea. Ward nodded as he looked at the busy crew carrying crates and containers of equipment out of the hold. The portable power crane from the pier was rumbling its way over to the tracks on the pier to help unload the equipment. I heard you guys had some breakthroughs to the steam power system. Yes, Chief Matt grinned. Well, the kids and Magister Thorne sent over are not bad at all. We managed to work out a simple system with their fog creation spell formation to create some feedback power generator. Matt led the party down to the hatch and into the main decks, where the original ballistas were removed and replaced by the two occult-looking shrine-like contraptions. Magic runes covered every small area, while the water tank stood in the thin, flimsy-looking stands, with two metal pipes looking like arms poked out from the tank. Dials and more runes covered the surface of the water tank, while mana stones sat in certain points in the magic formation. What is this? Ford looked at the strange design. Basically, the spell formation absorbs the hot air, turning it into heat energy and transferring it to the water tank. The boiling water and the steam comes out of the pipes, Chief Matt explained. Since we didn't have any turbine generators, we just let the steam out from the sides of the ship. The radial engines will overheat if we do not come out with something to cool them. And luckily, 
we managed to come up with something like this. That will allow us to not waste the heat energy. Chief Matt smiled at the ugly-looking generator. It's not pretty, but it works and also can function as a generator and a thermal sink. But it's only good for areas with high temperature. If not, the power output would be low. Nice. Very nice. Ford nodded and patted Chief Matt on his back. Always coming up with something amazing, Chief. Well, it's either getting it to work or we're going growing home, Chief Matt laughed. Its design still needs to be properly refined, but once it's up, we should be able to have more efficient designs that can work as air conditioning and thermal generators for engine rooms, which can also provide hot water, cool water, and power. It's like killing three birds with one mana stone. Work on it, Ford replied. Once the dry docks are properly constructed, we'll move to the floating wreck over to the full structural breakdown and check it up before we get repaired and refitted. Most likely, we'll plate the hull with a layer of steel, should increase the top speed by a few knots and replace the internal structure for steel paddle wheels and strengthen and armor up the hull and structure to a new 3-inch guns ordinance that is working on. Modernize the ship, slap in some proper navigation gear and steering, and we've got ourselves a nice little corvette. Ford laid out the plans for the ship to Matt. The islanders will also deliver a couple of their own ships to us, which we'll do for 3D scans, and we'll try to reverse engineer them while putting on our own touches. Hopefully, within six months we can learn how to build proper ships, either paddle-powered or screw-powered, Ford replied, and also have our own small fleet of mosquito boats ready in time for the Goblin's annual sea festival. Pretty ambitious, don't you think? Matt said as he listened to Ford's words. Six months. Captain wants to have at least another ship, at least the corvette size by the end of the year's winter, Ford said. But I told him unless he plans to scrap only one of the ships the islanders are trading to us, then yes, we could have another ship very retrofitted with less more modern standards. But Intel gauges that the islanders most likely will give us their oldest ships that most likely can barely float their way here. Ford said, so it depends on what we get, uh, so we'll see how it goes. The floating wreck definitely will not set sail alone, Ford continued. Even with modern guns, there's no way a single ship can handle hundreds of goblin ships, so either we build a new ship out, or it's going to stay within range of a new coastal defenses that we are planning to along the far harbor. The PT boats that we are designing wouldn't be able to handle the high seas, nor do they have the range to hit Goblin City, Ford added. So till we have some experience building large ships and the tenders for them, the PT boats will be assigned to coastal defenses and short-range patrols around Far Harbor. I see, Matt nodded. Well, sir, I think we'd better go topside. I need to check on my guys to make sure that they're not slacking. All right, let's go. Ford reclimbed the steps back up to the decks. Good work bringing back the ship, Matt. Tell your boys and girls that. The Colony, City Hall. Kagar felt a brain functioning and not functioning at the same time. The past few hours were like an unlimited buffet of information dump and culture shock that overloaded her mind. She sat there on one of the chairs with her head leaning against the backrest, mentally drained. Kagar! A soft voice called out to her, shaking her gently. Are you okay? Huh? Kagar whimpered. No! My brain hurts! Her ears flattened against her head and she squeezed her eyes while covering her ears and hands. No! More information! Billy stood there confused, wondering what had happened to Kagar in the meeting room with the higher-ups that made her like this. Um, I was told to bring you to your apartment, 
We will be housemates from today onwards. La 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 la. Kagar mumbled to herself. I can't hear you. La 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 la. Billy frowned and shook Kagar again. Hey, wake up. La 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 la. A vein popped in Billy's head and she shook Kagar more vigorously. Hey! Ah, Kagar cried. So giddy. Heavens, Billy sighed. Am I going to have someone like this as a roommate? She lamented her luck. Why did you shake me? Kagar rubbed her head and a hurt voice. Wait, it's you. Hmm, Billy frowned. You know me. It's because I was your guide this morning. No, no. Kagar hopped up from the chair. I carried you in the forest when we were running away from the hero. Huh? Billy rubbed her head. I'm sorry. I can't remember much of what happened in the forest when I woke up. I was in the back of a little golem. Kagar gave a hurt look as she lowered her head sadly, sniffling. I, I thought you would remember me. Um, Billy sighed. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. But thank you for saving me. And now we're housemates. Housemates? Kagar gave a confused look. What's that? Oh, we'll be staying in the same apartment, Billy grinned. They assigned you to be with me. I see. But what's in the apartment? Kagar asked, her ears twitching curiously. The Colony, Residential District 3. The red bus with the number 3 dropped off Kagar and Billy off at the bus stop with a sign that read Street 13. Remember, only bus 3 comes in here and press the bell when you see the street sign 13. Billy explained to Kagar. Now, once you're off the bus, follow the street to the next block and we'll be at the apartment you're staying at. Um, okay. Gagar looked up and down, left and right at her surroundings curiously, constantly turning her head to stare at something strange and asking, What's that? That's the rubbish bins, Billy sighed, feeling mentally drained as she kept explaining things that throughout her the bus ride. Later, I teach you more. Kagar craned her head up, staring at the large, blocky stone bouldering towering into the skies. There were dozens spread out with perfect streets and roads between them, patches of blue-green grass, patches covered in lawns, while what appeared to be gardens or parks were placed here and there amongst the towers. As the evening softly settled in and the sky turned purplish-red, the street lamps lit up, casting bright orange glow around the area and the towers lit up with lights turning the whole scene like some wondrous mage city told in stories. Kagar stood still and took in her surroundings in wonder as she watched people walking around the streets, children running without a care around the parks and gardens while heading home and the wondrous magic wagons driving up and down the streets. Come on, stop gawking like some country bunkered, but he teased. We're almost home. Kagar followed Bully to the stone tower, where a large ruined sign was posted on the side of the tower's walls. We are in Block 6A, the 7th floor, unit number 0709. Please remember. Kagar followed Billy into the brightly lit entrance and saw a light on the stairs that lit up while a couple of double doors were facing them on the other end. Billy held Kagar's hand and pulled her along, leading her to the double doors and pressed a strange-looking rune on the wall. Press this if you want to go up, Billy explained. What is this? Kagar asked as she bent over to observe the strange-looking square rune on this looking like an arrow pointing upwards. It's an Irlevata, Billy replied. Look, it's here. The chime rang and the door suddenly slid open with a soft rumble, surprising Kagar greatly, as a very small room appeared. Come on, Billy strolled in and Kagar as well and pressed the rune on its surface filled with many others. Remember this as the number seven. 
The door slid closed and Kagar shivered as she felt trapped. The small room suddenly rumbled and shook slightly, making her jump and hug Billy tightly. Are we gonna die? End of chapter. Chapter 182. Running and Choices. The earth shook as creatures and monsters of all types stampeded through the thick foliage. The weak and slow creatures were trampled over by the larger and faster creatures as they fled from the disaster happening behind them. Fires roared and the wood cracked and the forest raged with flames, fueled by the dry grass and trees during the hot summer months. A fiendish red dragon rolled around in the raging patch of flames in the middle of the scorched forest, enjoying the waves of heat emitted by the surrounding forest fires. It breathed in the scorching hot air, feeding the burning hot air in its lungs as it gave out a sigh of contentment. I love the smell of flames in the morning. It roared happily while roaming about, scattering ashes and embers into the hot air. Creatures fled with their eyes white showing in terror and made their escape from the burning forest, screaming in fear and from even choking to death the smoke and the flames, while others burnt to death or suffered from heat stroke. Northern Forest A great silverback wolf with a scar across its face growled as it turned to face its brood. There were barely three females left, and the young pups were clinging tightly to their backs, whimpering in fear. A couple of younger males panted and flopped over in the warm grass as they escaped from the burning inferno behind them. The alpha wolf snapped at the youngsters, forcing them to their feet to continue towards the south where there was a great water source. The mothers grimly licked the young pups on their backs and followed the alpha with parched throats and dry tongues dangling from their jaws. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain, we're picking up a large heat source in the north of our position. A sensor operator reported before she switched to the view on the main display with the station's display. On screen now. Blake turned his attention to the screen as he put aside his daily reports to look at the sensor readings. A colorful infrared image could be seen with large patches of white, reds and yellows shown over the stretch of forest. Sir, our patrolling UAV spotted this. It's a routine patrol route, the operator said, switching to visual. The display changed again, this time showing a swath of blue-green trees in the distance. Large plumes of grey smoke could be seen covering the horizon. Looks like a massive forest fire, sir. Where is that? Blake asked as he observed the imagery. Is it near any of our installations? It's roughly 200 kilometers north of us, the operator said. Nearest installation is the hydro dam station and the waterfall estimated at 100 kilometers away. Keep observing it, Blake ordered. Warn the hydro dam crew of the fire and get them to take precautions. Also, get a team to start working on some forest fire protection and firefighting procedures, just in case it spreads over here. Yes, sir, the operator replied and started making phone calls. Damn, Blake whispered under his breath. This better not come to us. He scrolled through these contacts on his list of communicator and selected the princess. After a short while, the call connected. Hello, dear. A choking sound was heard from the other line. Are you all right? Blake panicked, thinking that something had happened. No, I mean, yes, I'm all right. Just uh, don't call me dear in public, Shireen whispered. I'm in a meeting now. <laughs> okay, but I'm calling for some serious issues, Blake grinned. We have reports of a massive forest fire up north. Forest fire? Shireen, worried voice sounded over the comms. Will it affect us? It's going to be summer festival this week. Do I need to evacuate anyone? 
No, but I'd like you to notify the fire department to be on standby just in case, Blake said, and also come up with some fire safety procedures in case they need to be implemented should the fire come within 50 kilometers of our territory. I understand, she replied. I'll get my people on it. Thanks for the hard work, Blake grinned. Love ya. <laughs> Shireen's face turned red. You! <laughs> Bye-bye. Blake winked and closed the connection, smiling contently at himself, while the crew on the bridge whispered and giggled. Northern forest. Snarls and roars broke out amongst the trees, and dark figures flew out and slammed against the ancient tree. The snap of the thoracic spine of the wind wolf was barely heard over the roars and cries of wolves circling around the five-headed hydra. The hydra was large, almost on par with the alpha wolf. The scaly body was bloody wounds had ripped scales. It was surrounded by four wind wolves, and two of its serpentine heads glared daggers at the alpha, while the rest of the heads tracked each wolf. The wind wolves growled, their heckles raised, and the feet spread out ready to pounce on the hydra which suddenly attacked them as they ran away from the fire. The hydra hissed and its tail suddenly lashed out, striking with enough force to bend five millimeter thick plate steel. The nearest wind wolf leapt up, dodging the tail sweep, and landed on all fours before charging at the hydra. The tail continued to sweep with a massive force, forcing the rest of the wolves to scatter or rest having broken bones. The alpha roared and leapt in, dodging the tail attack nimbly, and the hydra's head start in to cramp on the jaws of the alpha. The alpha suddenly roared out, firing a ball of condensed air, which slammed right into the open mouth of one of the heads. The ball of super-condensed air erupts deep inside the head, and the head popped. The eyeballs and the startled hydra burst out with bits of flesh and blood. The other heads cried out in pain as one of its heads died, and the shock was transmitted to the other brains. As the heads reared back in pain, this gave the wolves an opportunity to strike at the hydra. They clamped their powerful jaws on the fleshy portions of the hydra, tearing at the flesh and scales. The unlucky wolf yelped in pain and fear when suddenly the heads recovered and three of them bit down on the wolf. The wolf screamed and struggled and tried to get free, but the sword long teeth held on and latched on tightly, causing a large amount of blood to flow out. The rest of the brood trying to save the wolf. One of them had leapt onto the back of the hydra, gnawing away at the base of its necks. The heads suddenly bit harder and the ripping sound, and the screaming wolf was ripped in two. Its guts and blood flung two ways and tossed to the side. The alpha wolf roared madly when he saw his brood killed and fired another ball of air at the hydra's heads, which weaved away from the attack. The hydra slashed out with its claws clutching at another wolf, who was latched onto its body, its fur barely able to block the flash. Three bloody claw marks appeared on the flank of the wolf, making it cry out in pain and disengaging from the hydra, limping to the side and licking its wounds. The remaining four heads turned to glare at the wolves on its back and darted down, tearing the wolf too slow to run into bloody chunks. The silverback alpha wound wolf, seeing this, that they could no longer win this fight, turned around and roared at the hidden females, telling them to run, and it turned back to face the hydra head-on, buying time for the females and the pups to escape. The Colony, District 3 Kagar suddenly jolted awake and sat straight in her bed. She looked around her surroundings in confusion, before suddenly remembering that she was in her own private room. She flopped back down on the soft, comfy bed, hugging the equally soft, fluffy pillow, and started running around on the bed. 
enjoying the simple luxury of a clean, soft bed sheets. She procrastinated for over fifteen minutes on the bed before she was willing to get off the bed. As she left her room, she saw a note stuck to the door from Billy, telling her that there was food on the table and she wants to cook, and there were some ingredients in the refrigerator. Kagar peeked under the covered plate and found a couple of slices of bread with slices of cold ham and fried eggs. She took her whole plate and walked into the balcony, pulling aside the curtains, and instantly a view of the city was before her. Kagar dragged a chair over and sat down eating her breakfast as she watched the scenery and city. She remembered that she had to go down to the academy for the start of her classes, and today was the day off for her. So she decided to read the brochures given to her by the lady at the city hall. The first brochure was a vibrant and realistic images spoke about general laws and crimes in the city. Things like stealing, robbery, fights, murders were all dealt with harshly. Others' laws talked about traffic in the streets, like how to cross the roads properly, with a green man lit and stop if the red man was lit. Complaints and grievances are to be reported to the nearest police station, while starting a new business requires a license to be granted from City Hall. Bribes and corruption will also be dealt with harshly, and even littering as a crime. The more Kagar read, the more she felt that she had no freedom here. Even crossing the road in the traffic that the lights are red is called jaywalking and is considered a crime, and may be fined with a few hundred credits. Who was the lord of the city, Kagar thought to herself. How can the lord expect people to follow every single law listed and not rebel? She continued reading and found more unbelievable laws written down. If caught without their identity card, also without resulted in being arrested and thrown into jail till their identity could be verified. Losing the card would result in a fine, but if the owner loses the identity card more than three times, the person can be jailed for up to three months. She quickly returned to her room and searched through her stuff, making sure her identity card was still safe. This place was so strict with their laws, maybe that is why it looked so neat and tidy. She put down a brochure about the laws and picked up the next one, which was about living in the city and how to adapt to the new city life. The colorful images printed on the parchment were amazing, making Kagar wonder how much gold was spent to make all of these pictures on a high-quality parchments. This talked about how to travel around the city on public buses, which timetables and bus routes, numbers, and even the cost of the ride them. Another section talked about where to find markets to purchase daily necessities. There was even a sanction on exchange rates of silver and gold to the local chits and credits. The final brochure talked about education and jobs. A long list of educational courses were listed, including the timings of the classes, cost, and locations. There were several basic courses that were free, and that was what Kagar would be going to tomorrow. But she was looking at the names of the courses and were confused by the mostly in English, which she barely understands. She sighed, and could only wait till her English improves before she can check up the courses that she can take. Under jobs, they were split into different sectors, from service, manufacturing, farming, to military. There were a few more others which she couldn't understand what they were. What job should I choose? End of chapter Chapter 183 More Running and Choices Camp Alpha Training Room 5 all right, boys, we're so gonna have some fun today. Master Sergeant Pike stood before the gathered platoon. Lately, it seems that you boys have gained some weight. No. The platoon moaned in dismay. Top, I'm still growing up. 
We've been working out in the gym. Ox good, no fat, much muscle. Whatever, Pike waved away the complaints. Full battle, order now. The platoon had a look of horror as they quickly sprinted off to their barracks to grab the gear. Ten. Twenty. Thirty. Pike looked at his wristwatch while counting the numbers. Forty. Fifty. Sixty. The men regathered and formed up in lines, each wearing his helmet, webbing, field bag, and weapon. Top platoon ready for inspection. Hmm. You guys took three minutes and forty seconds to form up, Pike frowned. Never mind. Give me a hundred. The platoon looked aghast as they dropped down to do push-up position. One. Two. One hundred. By the time they finished the hundred push-ups, their arms were trembling the sweat plastered their uniforms and their packs. On your feet, Pike roared. Today we're going to play a new game of training toy, and the toy is inside the training room five. Now section by section, move in. The men warily formed up and into the large structure. Despite being called a training room, its size was more like an aircraft hangar. The running tracks greeted the men and the obstacles along the trackway. Slopes, monkey bars, water pits, the rope ladders, and many more were laid out in intervals. There was a magic formation drawn at each of the circular tracks and also one on the roof where the lamps hang. Okay, boys, Pike rubbed his hands together gleefully. You guys are the lucky ones to test out the new obstacle course. Do you see those two magic formations? Those are gravity spells. It'll increase the gravity in here by 1.5 times. Rejoice! for I am joining you for a nice little run around this course. Uh. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain Blake strolled in through the armored hatch, nodding to the two saluting marines. How's the forest fire doing? Captain, Ford greeted Blake and gestured to the tactical plot table. The fire is spreading southwards at a rate of roughly 400 meters per hour. That is if there are no wind conditions affecting the fire spread. Blake nodded. So the hydro jam should be safe. Yes, sir, Ford replied. The fire should die up when it comes to within 50 kilometers of the dam. But just to be safe, we're planning on making fire breaks 15 kilometers out from the dam. City Hall has also dispatched some firefighters over to the dam, Ford said. We also deployed some marines over to support them should they need the manpower. The firefighters will be deploying water pumps, drawing water from the dam, and spray them around the surrounding forest to help moisten the area. Ford continued, Not to mention that the hot air and the water vapor released by the fires will condense into clouds that can cause rain or lightning. The rains might not douse the fires, but they will increase the humidity around the area, Ford replied. This will slow down the rate of the fire spreading. How about the creatures and monsters in the forest? Blake asked. They should be escaping the fires, right? Yes, sir. Ford tapped on the tactical map. Major Frank has raised a security alert to Orange, and all of our outposts along the northern sector are heightened alert. Luckily, for the farms along the northern sector have completed their harvest, so most of the workers have returned to the city or moved to other farms. Livestock is also being relocated to the eastern sector pastures, just in case. Alert the militia, too, Blake rubbed his chin. Make sure our infrastructures are not damaged by the escaping monsters. See if we can channel the animals and monsters away. Got it, Cap? Ford nodded. I'll talk with tactics. Northern Forest. The lead female wind wolf panted and heaved. The little one was clinging tightly on her back, 
their claws and tiny needle-sharp teeth prickling her back as they held on for dear life of the mother as she dashed through the thick trees rapidly. She leapt over the mass of her tree roots in front of her path and something slammed against her, sending her flopping back with a surprised yelp. The four pups on her back cried out in fear and fell off, rolling around on the forest floor like giant balls of fluffy cotton. The other female stopped and let out a low growl, staring at the large shadow that appeared behind the tree. A bronze boa hissed and slithered down, its glassy eyes staring at the yummy meals rolling on the forest floor, whimpering in panic. The mother wolf snarled and charged, her motherly instincts coming into play as she threw herself forward to protect her babies. The giant boa dismissively flicked its long, muscular tail, slapping away the female wolf with ease, sending her flying backwards and coughing blood. The pups yelped in fear and tried to scramble away from the boa hissed happily at its tiny prey. The other female wolf leapt forward, planting both of its clawed front paws directly on the crown of the giant snake, smashing its head down with a powerful body weight against the floor. The three pups on her back but and scratched harder on her back as they held on for the dear life, screaming in fear. The boa flipped and snaked, hissing in anger as it turned its attention to the other wolf. A dribble of blood flowed down from its broken scales on its head and it darted forward, trying to sink its fangs into the wolf who nimbly dodged out of the striking range. The attack and the distraction had bought enough time for the fallen pups to climb back onto their mother, which was badly wounded. She licked her pups and nudged them to her back, and turned to face the giant rampaging snake together with her sister. UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters. A marine knocked on the door in Blake's office and saluted. Captain, the prisoner is here. Blake looked up from the paperwork and nodded. Bring her in. The marine pushed the door wide open and the girl, rattling in chains, was led in with another marine escort. Sit. Blake observed the fidgety-looking girl dressed in a one-piece orange prisoner wear. The anti-magic collar was secured to her neck and both her hands were handcuffed together with a long, thin chain that linked the cuffs to both legs. The two marines stood expressionless with their arms behind their backs at parade rest, next to the seated girl, their eyes staring at the space in the bulkhead behind Blake. Blake tapped his stylus pen on the table and watched clearly dressed-dressed girl. He let the silence drag for a minute before he brought up the dossier on the computer at his desk. Elizabeth Regnar, 17 years old, and already a fifth-circle mage, specializing in non-elemental magic. He spoke in fluent common tongue. Tell me, Liz, Blake asked. Can I call you Liz? The girl nodded timidly, keeping her head down and not daring to meet his eyes. What is your plans for the future? Blake continued. What are your goals? Liz kept quiet as she continued to keep her head bowed. Blake gave a shrug and said, Well, I have a few choices for you here. I can let you go free, but you might turn around and bite me later. So, it seemed better to have you executed and just dump your body in the forest and feed the monsters, and no one would be the wiser, Blake said coldly. Alternatively, you pledge your allegiance to me and you get to keep your life and still have a future for your plans and goals. So, what will it be, Blake asked. Feed the monsters or work for me. I, I, Liz gripped the hem of her dress tightly as she didn't know what to do. The haughtiness and pride were all gone in her. The defeat and subsequent imprisonment had drained her mentality and, for the first time in her life, she felt weak and powerless. Ever since she was a child and manifested her most magic circle at the age of ten, everyone around her praised her and called her a child prodigy. 
Her family was instantly famous as countless rich and powerful families had extended multiple invitations to work with her family, and countless marriage proposals were offered to her, some even from members of the royal court at the capital. She was enrolled in the most prestigious royal school for magic in the capital when she turned 12, and after five years of studies, she graduated as an honor student and a fifth circle mage. Yet now, she was defeated, weak, powerless, and even captured. Liz sat there, her head lowered, and she slumped her shoulders in shame and defeat. Is dead better than dishonor? Or pride? Should she die when she hasn't even reached the prime of her life? The tapping sound of the pen made by the demon kept her on edge. She gritted her teeth and finally muttered, I, I, I choose to serve you. Huh. Blake blinked his eyes as he pretended not to hear the response. What did you say? I said, uh, I choose to serve you. Liz looked up angrily with shame and tears in her eye. I pledge my soul to you. Isn't that what you want? Well, if you're willing to work with me, then sure, Blake smiled. But I don't need your soul. Liz looked surprised. But you are at the... Demons? Blake gave a clock of laughter, mirth in his eyes. Seriously? He looked at the two marines and grinned. So you are saying that they sold their souls to me? He gestured to the stock extolled expressionless marines beside her. Liz turned and looked to the marines at her side and felt a chill run down her spine as they stood still without expression. Like being soulless, she shivered and timidly nodded. Everyone says the rebels sold their souls to the demons and... She stared at Blake's short, rounded ears. <laughs> Blake shook his head. Well, don't worry about that, but there are some terms and conditions I'll lay down first. You have to take a binding blood oath and obey the laws and regulations everyone here follows. Blake spoke seriously. There are people who do not trust you, and frankly, so do I. Until you prove your worth and trustworthiness, I will then release you from the blood oath and after a period of five years. Five years? Liz looked surprised. You mean you'll release me from your oath in five years? Yes. After that, it is up to you if you want to continue working for me or leave, Blake explained. But for the next five years, you have to work and live here unless you're assigned to another location. I'll put your abilities to the best use, and most likely you will be assigned to the academy for the time being, Blake said. You will be paid a retainer fee and assigned a government housing. Other than not breaking the law and doing the work that you are assigned to, you're generally free to live the life the way that you want to. Is this real? I even get paid. Liz looked at Brake suspiciously. It's not some trick to lower my guard and eat my soul. I am serious. And no, we do not eat nor need souls. Brake solemnly replied. Now I'll have someone do up a contract and let you read through it. And of course, you can change your mind at any time. Before the blood oath. Well, if you do. Blake ran his thumb against his throat and gave an evil smile. Liz nodded rapidly in understanding. Good. Blake grinned. Bring her out and assign her some basic accommodation first. Blake told the marines who gestured to Liz to get up. Bring in the next prisoner. End of chapter. Chapter 184. Gods and Burgers. The Colony Residential District 4. It was a sunny when Kagar stepped out of her apartment, dressed in a simple pastel green dress, she timidly looked around her surroundings as she exited the evilator. Still unaccustomed to the scary room that seemed to trap her as it rumbled and shook its way up and down. Today she was supposed to go to the academy for her introductory classes, and the morning before Billy left for work, 
she had acted like an older sister, teaching Kagar how to take the public bus and where to get off, despite being younger and shorter than Kagar. Kagar gathered her courage and strolled out over her apartment block and nervously looked around. The scenery was still slightly different in the day compared to the time that she'd first came in the evening. There were slightly lesser people on the streets, and she still even saw some people riding the strange contraptions with two thin wheels, working their legs in a circular motion and speeding along the streets. She saw some children playing around the park as she walked towards the bus stop. They were climbing up and down in some kind of tiny castle that even had some kind of slide, which the children giggled and laughed as they zoomed down the slides. Kagar felt conflicted as she remembered how her own childhood that there was no fun times. It was all about learning and training on her spirit techniques. Even the other children had to work on the farms and help out in the other family stores. Is this some kind of utopia? She thought to herself as she walked down the clean streets, passed by a park filled with bright yellow flowers, each almost as tall as her. Kagar was not seen such flowers before, and she took a detour and stood before one of the massive blooms. Little girl, is this your first time you've seen such flowers? An elderly suddenly spoke to her from the side. He was dressed in an outdoor work clothes and wearing a straw hat and gloves. Um, yes, what kind of flowers are they? Kagar frowned as she doesn't recall seeing such flowers in a book that she had read before. These are called sunflowers. The gardener explained, they came from the humans. Agar looked surprised. The humans? You mean those short-eared people? The gardener nodded sagely. Yes, these flowers are not only beautiful, but the seeds could also be eaten or pressed into oil for cooking. Even the petals can be used to make colored dye. I see. Kagar smiled and gave a bow. Thank you, sir. I need to go to the bus stop now. And she left the park full of sunflowers. Interesting. As she arrived at the bus stop, she saw a row of stalls and houses next to the bus stop with many people queuing up. Curious, she went to take a look and her sensitive nose picked up a delicious smells of cooked food of some sorts. Her nose carried her body over to the stalls before her brain caught up with her, and she saw several shops selling bread, pastries, and some kind of burgers, and a soupy, long, chewy noodles and even traditional people's food, like fruits and nut platters, and nut platters in paper bowls, honeyed porridge and cold cuts. Kagar's tummy rumbled despite having breakfast. She jingled the strange, colorful coins in her pocket that she received as part of the care package that every newcomer gets after registering in City Hall. Should she get a burgle? She pondered long and hard, and in the end her tummy won the war against her brain. After she queued for a short while and ordered the Verum patty burgle covered generously in tomato sauce, she happily munched away and saw the bus driving off from the bus stop. She froze and recognized the bus number from the one that Billy told her to take to the go to the academy, and that if she missed it, she would have to wait up to twenty minutes more for the next bus. No, I'm late. The Colony Academy of Sciences and Magic Dr. Sharon, Magister Thorne, and Petty Officer Christine sat around a work desk in Magister Thorne's office as they looked at the stack of documentation regarding the broken amulet recovered from the hero. A two-way live video conference call was linked to the UNS Singapore's main conference room, where several of the top brass were in attendance. So in conclusion, the sun amulet, Hoichli Lepochli, the Aztec deity of war, sun, and human sacrifice. But in this case... 
human being a relative word, as we can confirm that it does not limit the human beings but other living species as well, Dr. Sherrod said. The information was given by the girl who witnessed how the hero drained the life force out. Can be concluded that this is a form of sacrifice, which most likely boosted the hero's lifespan and also his powers. From the Marines' eyewitnesses, they clearly heard the hero bragging he lived for over 200 years, meaning that the hero must have been routinely sacrificing people to increase his lifespan. Dr. Sherrod added, But we can't really prove any of that, so all of these are just working theories. So, Doc, Blake's voice came in loud and clear. How does that all relate to how an ancient human civilization deity came over thousands or even millions of light years to this planet? We suspect that due to the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire from 1519 to 1521, which drove the Aztec gods away, the Spanish inquisitors in Mexico during that time were pretty effective and brutal in enforcing the ways and religion. Christine took over and explained, This probably reduced the mass amount of devotees worshipping the Aztec gods, meaning a huge reduction in faith, which was theorized by some that the faith of the main source of power for the gods. As for how they traveled over to other planets, we have no idea. By magic? If that's the case, Commander Ford interrupted, does that mean that the gods and deities from America, England, Egypt, China, India, hell, all over the world are real? Theoretically, yes, Christine replied. We have a lack of information and evidence here, but we theorize that the gods and deities from Earth had migrated away from our planet when the civilizations that they were the patron of collapsed. As they lost worshippers and faith, their powers or even their presence weakened greatly and have to find new worshippers in other worlds. But how come there isn't any divinity or Christianity or Buddhism or even Islam? Someone asked why we didn't have a hero of our own. I think there are, it's just the modern people don't believe in them as much as the olden days. I mean, look at the old days. There were stories of heroes and even gods appearing upon men. But over time, it just became legends and myths, Christine explained. We pray to our own religions and make offerings, but we rely more on technology than faith to power our current culture and lifestyles. Whereas, in ancient times, religion and gods were ingratiated into every part of our lives and culture. Maybe that is why we lost touch with magic as we rely more on tools and technology nowadays. So, does this mean that as long as we have faith and belief in God, that we can use magic too? Blake asked. No, we probably had regressed too much in that manner, Dr. Sharon replied. Our species has evolved to be more reliant on technology. Our brains are more attuned to science. This probably cut off our original roots with magic. That is probably why we can't feel or touch the magical power now. So is there a way that we can use magic in the future? Frank asked, like training or even implements if required. Most likely not in our generation. If we continue to live here, by future generations and crossbreeding with elves, Dr. Sharon frowned. I'd say there's a 60% chance that our descendants would be able to use magic. As for the use of implements, Dr. Sharon sighed, if you're willing to sacrifice people to do testing as guinea pigs, then there is a 50-50 chance, maybe higher. While we dig up more of these artifacts, Dr. Sharon gestured to the amulet, fuse ourselves with this and then we can use magic too. No, we will not sacrifice people as test subjects on some mad science experiment here. Blake forcefully cut in. No departments must ever cross that line, or I personally will put a bullet in your head. Is that clear? Aye, Captain, 
Everyone replied in unison, Good. That line of thought will not be entertained again, Blake growled. Now, the amulet. Is it dangerous? What did Dr. Sharon mean by fusing with the amulet? Dangerous? Not really, as it is in an inert state, Magister Thorne replied, but it is best not to touch it with bare hands, as it might attempt to fuse with the person's body. Fuse? Blake looked worried. Is that dangerous? Well, the amulet doesn't react to anything except when it senses a living body touching it, Magister Thorne explained. As long as no one touches it barehandedly, it should just lay dormant. Magister, did you touch it? Blake frowned. Ha! <laughs> Magister Thorne looked slightly embarrassed. I did it under controlled conditions with guards and even Dr. Sharon watching me. The amulet seemed to feed off my life force or manner of living beings, Magister Thorne added. I felt my mana powers being drained just at the sight contact with no more than two seconds when I quickly retracted my hand. Blake sighed and rubbed his face. Magister, please do not take such risks, and from now on, no one touches the amulet. Once you have completed all your findings, I want that booby trap locked up with a buried with a key thrown away. Is that clear? Magister Thorne looked dejected. But it's a god-level artifact. No. Blake shook his head. It's too dangerous. No one knows what will happen if the amulet fuses with a person. Will that person still be sane, or the mind is taken over by the Aztec god? So no. Is this for the safety of everyone? We can't take that chance of another hero rampaging here, especially in the school so near the city. Magister Thorne nodded and apologized. You are right. I am sorry. I have forgotten about the safety of my students and the people in the city. Apology accepted, Blake replied. Remember, no risks. We can't afford to lose any people at all. What else do we know? Blake asked. Are there more heroes out there? Magister Thorne nodded. There are a few over the years, but no one knows where they are now. I see, Blake frowned. What else? The inscriptions and pictograms on the amulet are like a prayer to Hatzilla Pochli, and Christine said. Well, with half of the amulet missing, I can only translate so much. But the one thing is for sure, Hoichlolo Pochli was here during the Age of Gods, Christine continued, so theoretically he should be a part of the new gods who fought against the old gods. But since we do not have much written records of what happened to the gods after the final confrontation on this continent, we do not know if there are any gods still remaining on this planet. And also, what kind of god-level artifacts are scattered around the world? Christine said. If the Empire has their hands on a few of these artifacts, we might be in for a tough fight if they have a few more of those, uh, heroes. Blake's expression turned dark. I understand. Tavar, I want you to see if you can set up some spy network. We need to gather more information from out there. Blake turned to the intelligence officer, who nodded. Now, the other problem we have is which ancient gods or deities have come here. End of chapter. Chapter 185. Gone Rogue. The Colony, City Hall. Billy pushed a trolley laden with boxes and documents and rolls of parchment. She stopped at the elevator and pushed the button, and as she waited, her eyes drifted to the posters stuck on the notice board. First Summer Festival, come with your family and friends, was written in bold letters, and a lifelike colorful images were displayed. Billy smiled, thinking of asking Kagara along to the festival that was just three more days away. The lift door sprung open with a ding and Billy pushed the trolley in, sighing as she returned to her mundane job. 
Despite missing her free life and foliage, she was grateful for having a roof over her head and food in her table and a sense of security in the city. Endure three more days. Northern Forest Hydro Dam Power Station Corporal Bartley Jackson leaned his thick muscular body over the packed sand barrier and sighed worriedly. He looked at the large swath of blue greenery in the trees of the fall horizon. The reddish glow of the thick grey clouds and the smoke could be seen. The air smelled slightly acidic as the ashes and the haze from the forest fire was carried over by the drift winds. Even the sun was blotted out from the amount of haze in the air, making the entire area dim. Lightning flashed in the distance amongst the clouds of smoke. Bartley, frowning slightly as he stood and watched the three-story tall reinforced concrete watchtower next to the dam, where he had a large lake was dammed up, and the constant roaring of the falling water that turned the turbines of the dam muted the rumbles of the thunder. He turned, he spotted some movement in the far distance. He picked up his field glasses and scanned the edges of the forest. A perimeter of roughly 500 meters were cleared around the power station, giving the defenders clear lines of fire and making it harder for any enemies or monsters to approach. There were also a couple layers of remote-control claymore mines planted around the power station and barbed wire fences ringing the last 150 meters of the station. A sudden movement caught his attention, and he swept his field glasses over and spotted a blur of white that appeared in his ten times magnification view. Martley adjusted his focus and field glasses and saw a wolf half hidden amongst the forest edge. Bartley's frown grew deeper as he observed another large wolf appeasing beside the next, a key to comms. Tower toot to aquarium, I got eyes in two wind wolves, northeastern quadrant, over. Aquarium, roger, stand by, out. Bartley returned to observing the two wolves, and they both gingerly paused at the edge of the cleared field. By now, remote cameras installed by the power station would have picked up the two wolves, and he wondered what the new lieutenant would do. He checked his MG-1 on his mount, making sure that the ammunition belt was not snagged against anything, and returned to observing the wolves, who seemed to hesitate and kept looking over their shoulders. Aquarium to all units, hold your fire, only fire by my command. The lieutenant's voice came in over the radio set. Suddenly the wolves seemed to send something as they stepped out into the cleared land and faced the forest, their heckles and their tails in aggressive stance. Bartley's eyes went wide as the wolves turned and saw tiny shapes on the backs of the wolves. Tower 2, to Aquarium, be advised that the wolves appear to have pups on them, over. Aquarium, roger. At just in time, suddenly a small rain of dark shapes coming from the forest appeared over the two wolves, who left and dodged like they were dancing or playing, and a small flood of green shapes appeared from the edge of the forest, rushing towards the wolves. Tower 2, I got goblins engaging the wolves over, Bartley reported as he glued his eyes to the field glasses. Please advise, over. Aquarium, stand by, over. Bartley cursed the soft voice as he rooted toward the wolves. Come on, you can do it. The goblins encircled the two clearly weakened wolves protecting the pups in their back, and hidden goblin archers shot arrow after arrow at the snarling wolves. Goblin spearmen kept the snapping jaws and claws at arm's length, constantly giggling and shrieking away. The wolves barely had much strength left, looked at each other and suddenly they leapt over the heads for a short goblins, breaking out of the encirclement and charged towards the power station. 
Aquarium to all units. Set your sights in the two fifty meters. Make ready. What? Bartley lowered his field glasses and listened to the radio chatter. The lieutenant wants to shoot the wolves with the babies. The wolves were limping towards the perimeter, fencing with a hundred goblins chasing after them. Aquarium to all units. Target the wolves, followed by the goblins. Bartley gave a conflicted look at his machine gun before he detached it and determined look and slung it over his back. He hooked his booted feet on the side of the ladder and gripped the sides before sliding down rapidly, expertly controlling his rate of descent with his gloved hands and feet. He sprinted out over the tower and ran towards the gates at the perimeter fence, praying that he could make it in time. He glanced over at the power station's roof where several helmeted heads could be seen, manning their weapons. Reaching the gate, he unholstered his revolver and fired at the lock without coming to a stop and slammed his whole body weight against the small gate with what shocked off the lock, sending it swinging open and squeaking on its hinges. He saw the walls were roughly three hundred meters away from his position, as there were colored markers stuck to the measuring intervals for the defenders to gauge distances. He ignored the squeaking calls of the comms and just ran at full speed towards the walls. Lieutenant Starbin stood up from his chair in surprise inside the security control room and stared incredulously at the large marine charging out of the killing zone. What is that marine doing? He asked a room full of personnel, who also stared in surprise at the camera display. Call him back now, Starbin roared. Who is that madman? What is he trying to do? Sir, that should be Corporal Bartley from Tower 2, one of the operators replied. He's the one that called in the sightings. Call him back, Lieutenant Starbin roared angrily. He stared with anger at the moving figure on the display screens. It was not even two weeks since he took command of Battalion 1, Charlie Company, Platoon 4, and those humans in his command were disagreeing with him. Sir, he's not responding to our hails, the operator replied. The wolves are approaching the 250 mark. Do we still fire? We might hit him. God damn it, Starbin coursed. Warn him off now. The operator turned back to his radio set and desperately tried to call the marine that went rogue. Corporal Bartley, cease your actions and return to your station immediately. Bartley's comms squeaked, which he ignored as he pumped his arms and sprinting towards the wolves. The two wolves slowed and glared at him as he approached, while also keeping an eye behind them at the horde of goblins at their tails. Steady, Bartley stood before the two wolves who towered over him with at least twice his height. Bloody foam was fleeing on the sides of their jaws, while their massive tongues lobbed out of their sides and heaved with each pant. Wounds and bloody marks could be seen all over their bodies when Bartley was up close to them. One of the wolves suddenly collapsed and its rear legs gave out, and the three dog-sized pups cried out in fear, meowing for their mother. The remaining standing wolf positioned itself before Bartley and growled, baring its dagger-sized teeth at him. "'Easy, friend!' Barkley gently said, while spreading his arms out to show that he meant no harm. He slowly moved his hand to the communicator and keyed the mic. Aquarium, do not fire. Repeat, all units do not fire on the walls. What the thirteen hows are you playing at, Marine? Lieutenant Starbin's voice screamed into his ear. You return to the control room now and place yourself under arrest for abandonment of your post and total disregard for orders of your superiors. Sir, the wolves are just trying to protect the young... Bartley explained slowly and calmly like he was talking to a child, which infuriated the lieutenant more. They meant no harm to us. We have no need to fire on them. 
As they were talking, the cries of the goblins grew louder, and Standing Wolf panicked. It tried to protect its fallen sister, and at the same time having to be on guard against Bartley and the approaching goblins. Corporal, I don't care if the gods themselves are out there. You disobey direct orders and abandoned your post. Lieutenant Starvin screamed. Get your rear back here now. Sorry, sir, Bartley stoically replied. Since I've already disobeyed orders, I might as well continue. What? Get back here now. Bartley disconnected his communicator and unslung his MG-1 from his back. He turned and faced the coming goblins and braced himself and fired. The wolves and pups jumped back in shock at the loud buzzing roars coming from the strange two-legged creature. They cowed on the spot and covered their sensitive ears and loud roars, whimpering in fright. The MG-1 spewed bright traces out towards the coming goblins. The high-powered 8.5mm rounds tore through their makeshift armor and naked bodies like paper targets, dropping them in scores. Martley grunted and fired in a long burst at each cluster of goblins he saw still standing. The heavy recoil made controlling the weapon difficult for most people, but not for him, and the orcs that he had naturally larger build and stronger upper body strength. Less than five minutes, the remains of the goblin force retreated in fear, screaming and crying in their tribal languages as they ran back into the cover of the forest. Bartley lowered his weapon and looked at the very scared wolf standing over its sister. Its tail and ears were lowered and plastered against its skull. It gave a growl of warning at Bartley, who gently put his weapon down on the grass and raised up his hands. Easy, I'm a friend. The wolf looked at him with suspicion and then at the weapon he placed on the floor and decided to trust him, for both she and her sister were totally spent, having been to run non-stop and attack by monsters for over five days. It flopped down on the ground and panted, her strength leaving her body and lay there with half-opened eyes, watching two legs approach her slowly. Bartley slowly made his way towards the giant wolf and patted it gently on its head, letting the wolf lick his hands. Good girl, friends. He looked at the frightened pups trying to hide under the mother's belly and smiled. He walked slowly over to the other fallen wolf and found it still alive, but badly injured and weak. The wolf pup the size of a German shepherd growled at him, burying its fangs as it tried to protect its mother. Bartley kneeled down and held out the back of his hand, which the wolf pup cautiously sniffed his hand, before giving it a lick and allowing Bartley to rub and scratch his head and floppy ears. When the security team of marines led by Lieutenant Starvin came up, they found Bartley surrounded by several wolf puppies, happily licking and playing with him between two giant wolves watching over them. End of chapter Chapter 186 Wolf Whisperer Northern Forest Hydro Dam Power Station A small convoy of jeeps rumbled in through the double gates of the sentry posts, stopping before the blocky structures sitting next to a roaring man controlling waterfall. A concrete dam had blocked off the original waterfall and the water was released by outflow gates, which created the waterfalls. The skies were hazy and smelled of burning wooden ashes. Captain Blake stepped down from one of the jeeps and nodded to Major Frank, who was accompanied by Master Sergeant Pike. Both of them were waiting at the entrance of the building for Blake's arrival and saluted Blake as he exited the jeep. Sir, at ease, Blake replied. Sir, are they inside? Oh no, sir, Major Frank replied. We actually placed them outdoors under a shed and armed guards 24-7. And the Marine who broke regs? Blake asked again as he followed the two Marines into the building. What happened actually? 
Well, Marine is one of ours, Frank explained. Seems like he spotted some wolf puppies being carried by the two female wolves being chased by goblins. He decided to save them instead of shooting them. So he managed to save the wolves. Blake stopped and turned to look at the two officers. What's the issue now? Sir, Pike answered for the Major. The Marine abandoned his post during a combat situation and disobeyed a direct order from his commanding officer. I see, Blake nodded. So what are you guys going to do about it? Frank frowned. I don't really want to give a very harsh punishment, but if I don't, it might give him the impression that we are cuddling our own people, and also that abandoning the duty posts and insubordination will not get one into much trouble, which will undermine the officer's authority and also lead to more issues in the future. Go by the book then, Blake replied. We can't show favoritism. Sir, insubordination during times of war is a death penalty. Frank looked at Blake seriously. Put him up for a court-martial, Blake sighed. Let the court judge for him then. Now let's see the wolves, Blake continued walking through the corridors of the elevator that would bring them to the top side of the dam. Both marines looked at each other and nodded. Yes, sir, Frank replied with a heavy heart as he knew that the marine would get the death penalty. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor, Special Projects Workshop. Easy, easy. Senior Spaceman Mason called out from the stood under the newly developed in line four engines that were secured to the chains on the workshop roof crane. Lower it slowly. He held on to the side of the brand new engine and with the help of another engineer, they carefully slotted it into place on the hull of a sleek-looking experimental speedboat built with the ship carpenter Amar and a team of engineers and craftsmen. The next hour was spent carefully connecting the drive shafts, cranks, chains, and bolting the engine into place. The experiment speedboat had a V-shaped bow, sharp lines, and simple wheelhouse. It was ten meters long and four meters wide, powered by a four-cylinder water-cooled inline piston engine and a hundred two horsepower. After several model kit-sized prototypes, they finally built a smaller-scale working prototype to test before they started working on an actual design. The whole team double-checked the motorboat to ensure every bolt, nut, and screw was properly tightened and in place before they pushed out the sliding doors that led out to the sea. A sluice gate opened up and seawater started to flood the dry dock of the experimental motorboat. As the water started budding the dock, the motorboat gently floated up on the surface of the water and the team of amateur shipwrights cheered. Let's start the engines and test out our new toy, Mason yelled excitedly. Even Amar was excited as he stood on one side watching the boat as he helped design a build. Mason grabbed a bright yellow personal flotation device and tossed it over to Amar. Come on, let's go for a test drive. Amar eagerly wore the life vest with the help of one of the human engineers, and they all climbed aboard the motorboat. Mason turned the ignition and the engine roared slowly to life, sending out a small cloud of grey smoke but the exhaust. The rest of the team removed the lines from the moorings and Mason gently powered the boat, easing it out of the workshop. As it appeared out of the workshop in the sun, the workers around Far Harbor stopped and stared, wondering what kind of boat is that. Engine temperature looks good, just the way we trial ran them before. One of the engineering guys on board called out. Great. Let's clear the stone pier and see what this baby can do. Mason grinned and he pushed the throttle up sending the motorcraft charging through the waves. Oh my god, this is awesome! The sea, wind, and spray hit them as they bounced across the waves, running at over 20 knots per hour. 
Ma gripped the handrails of the motorboat and started laughing wildly. This is amazing. I've never gone so fast before in the sea. Amazing. The motorboat hit a surge wave and bounced up, sending the whitish V-shaped waves out. Mason drove the motorboat around the pier, charging past the floating wreck, still moored at the pier and showing off his boat. Soon the pier was lined with workers and staff as they oohed and aahed at the trials that Mason was putting the boat through. After an hour of playing around the motorcraft, they finally happily returned to the workshop, leaving a cheering crowd behind. Northern Forest Hydro Dam Power Station Blake leaned over the railing and observed the two giant walls licking their pups from the roof of the dam. So, how aggressive are they? Well, as long as you don't try and take the kids away, Pike replied, they seemed okay so far with us next to them. What happened exactly? Blake asked as he watched one of the pups trying to snuggle up to his mother, but failed and did a cute tumbling cartwheel instead. We think it's due to the forest fire. They were trying to escape from it, Frank said, and we think almost all of the monsters were driven away from the forest, and these two were carrying their kids with them, so the rest of the monsters would probably perceive the puppies as an easy meal. So what are we going to do with them, sir? Pike asked as he frowned. We do not know if we can train them or to be mounts or even work animals, provided that they are willing to listen to us. Could we make them our next best friend like dogs? Blake asked. The orcs do use them as mounts. Not sure, but I did send out a message to the orcs and the marines, Pike said. See if any of the orcs have any knowledge of rearing giant wolves. Blake nodded. Let's go closer. And they climbed down the stairs and walked towards the vehicle shed, which they gave the wolves to use. As Blake and his party approached the shed, both wolves sat up and looked at them, walking over with cautious and curious eyes, but they did not growl nor have any other signs of aggression. Blake stopped before the nearest wolf and saw a streak of dirt and blood on the matted fur. Are they provided with medical care and adequate food and water? Food and water, yes, Spike scratched his head. Medical, we don't have any veterinarians here. Blake turned to look at Pike. We don't? How about those looking after the mufflers and pico-picos? Well, we are not sure if they're willing to even come close to a giant wolf, Pike replied, and the scent of the wolves might spook the animals when they return. Plus, the wolves don't allow us to touch them. We've tried, trust us. How about the marine who got close to them? Blake asked. Sir, he's placed in confinement for now, Pike replied. If one of the staff rooms here. Well, bring him here and see if he can do some good, Blake ordered. Yes, sir. Pike turned away and spoke to his communicator, while Blake turned and watched the puppies play, the corner of his mouth lifting up. Not long, a large, bald male accompanied by a trio of marines arrived. They saluted the Major and Blake. Sir, the prisoner is here, sir. Remove the restraints, Blake nodded towards the handcuffs. Yes, sir. The marine and escort quickly removed Bartley's handcuffs, which Bartley rubbed his sore wrists once they were removed. Corporal Bartley, front and clear, Pike roared. Bartley quickly marched up and stood at parade attention before Blake. Corporal Bartley reporting, sir. Corporal, I heard the wolves are friendly with you, Blake asked. Is that correct? Sir? Yes, sir. Bartley replied in a serious manner. Okay, Corporal, I got a job for you. I heard that the wolves only allow you to get close to them. Blake gestured to the wolves who were all looking at them with more curious expressions. I'm putting you in charge of looking after them. You will be let out from your confinement once per day to look after them, after which you will be returned to your cell. 
Corporal, while you did a good deed here, but you disobeyed direct orders and even abandoned your post, which is a serious offense in times of war, Blake said. Redeem yourself with hard work, and we'll see what we can do about your court-martial. Sir, thank you, sir, Martley replied without a change of expression. All right, show me what you can do, Blake nodded. Clean them up, and see if you can patch them up as well. Bartley walked up to the wolves who licked and poked their noses against him, allowing him to touch their fur and pat them. Sir, I'll need some brushes and a first aid kit and, um, buckets? Blake turned to Pike and nodded, who started talking to his communicator again. Blake gestured to Frank and they walked to the side away from hearing the rest. Well, if we can tame these wolves, I think we could sort of have some kind of wolf cavalry, Blake suggested. Mobile infantry and all that. Wolf cavalry? Frank repeated and laughed. Well, it would be better if we had bears. Northern forest. The plume of flames rose up from the center of the mass ash field. The red dragon yawned and puffed out another plume of flames from its nostrils while scratching its tummy. It looked around in surprise at the land around it, unable to recall why the lush forest had instead turned into a land of scorched earth. Its tummy rumbled in hunger and looked around, trying to see if it could spot some prey. But all it saw was scorched land and blackened tree stumps. Giving a huge sigh, it flapped its wings and rose into the air, and started looking around to see if it could find something big and yummy to cook. As it rose higher, it saw the area around the land burnt. Flames and smoke were even seen in the forest all around it. It scratched its head in embarrassment as it finally realized that the course of the destroyed land was caused by it. Oh well, it thought to itself. Nature will always find a way to grow back, and it flapped its wings lazily. Catching the heat air drift coming up from the forest fire and starting to glide in a circular motion as it climbed higher and higher into the air before flying away from the scorched land and heading for the distance, the blue-green forest that had not been affected by the forest fire yet. End of chapter Chapter 187 Summer Festival UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters Blake removed his uniform and draped it over his chair before he poured himself a drink and made more fermented carato, locally farmed. He took a sip and let the harsh liquid burn going down through his throat as he felt the warm, fuzzy feeling in his stomach. Want a drink? He asked the princess who was seated in his chair going through her work on his computer. She shook her pretty head and said, our food stores are looking good. We have a large surplus of grains and tubers, which can be stored for others a season. And we do not need to slaughter the animal stock for winter, as we have plenty of food stored up for them too. Shireen focused on the Exol sheets. The muffler herders have started shearing the wool for production on winter clothing. Blake stood behind Shireen and hugged her. How are the preparations for the summer festival going? Shireen smiled and leaned back into Blake's embrace. We have quite a few venues allocated for the summer festival, one at each residential district, and the main event will be held at City Hall Plaza. Since it is a two-day holiday event, I have increased the number of buses and out-of-farms, mines, and far harbor to pick up those that wish to attend the festival. Shireen purred happily in Blake's arms. I also have followed the recommendation given by your staff to double the pay for those working on holidays, so that they will not feel left out of our festivals. Hmm... Blake muttered. So everything is in order? Shireen nodded. Well, my people are still setting up staging areas and the event site. They should be finished by today, and tomorrow the festival starts. How about your site? Shireen looked back and asked. 
Is everything okay? Well, we still have many things to worry about, Blake sighed as he stood up, picking up his drink and drowning it down. Goblins to our west, empire to the northeast, and a natural disaster to our north. But at least we managed to resolve our basic needs, Blake smiled at Shireen. Food, water, shelter, security, and manufacturing are all on track. We just need a larger population to support our industrial needs, Blake said. Other than that, we are doing pretty well, as long as there aren't any more invasions. Shireen nodded. But the Empire, sooner or later, they will return, right? Bleak rubbed Shireen's head gently, leaning against his table. Intel estimates roughly a month before news gets to the Empire's capital, and another month before some sort of response is taken. By then, it's autumn, Blake said. Hopefully late autumn is at best, so no sword and shield army will move in winter without long-term preparations. I hope. Shireen nodded again. My father and brothers used to say fighting in winter is a terrible and a huge drain on resources. Men had frozen to death or died of hunger due to supply lines getting cut off by heavy snowstorms. Blake grinned. Not bad. Well, that's one of the major reasons, not to mention the terrain will be harder for travel, and they have to cross the uncharted forest. The uniform combat engineer unit together with the elementalist girl has already started a line of defensive works at the bottom of the ramp of the Sawtooth Mountain, Blake added. The original wall will be upgraded and supported with the still under-development 30-inch guns. Once we have those built, even if the Empire throws a million troops at us, we can easily hold the pass as long as we have ammunition. Shireen frowned. Will the Empire stop coming? Why can't they just leave us in peace? I don't have the answer for that, my princess, Blake replied gently, patting her soft hair. Well, we can only make it so expensive for them to attack us that they call for peace talks. If not, once our air power is up and running, Blake's eyes gleamed dangerously, I just bombed them back to the Stone Age. The Colony, Residential District Number 4 Kagar sat on a wooden bench watching several city hall staffs hanging colourful banners and ribbons on the lamps posts lining up the side of the streets. Lately, the whole city was full of excited energy as everyone was looking forward to the summer festival. She nibbled on her burgirl and sighed in bliss. She picked up a textbook, Introduction to Basic English, and started reviewing her notes for her class. Her study partner was Billy when she returned from a day job at City Hall. Both of them were becoming closer and closer in just a few days. The next day, Kagar went to her morning classes in time and joined the class for over 40 students, some she recognized as part of the same group when they escaped from foliage. The teacher, called Christine, taught them the basic alphabet and phonics. The lessons were easily picked up and absorbed by Kagar, as she had always liked to read. When the school bell rang, Christine ended the lesson and gave them some homework to do at home. While the whole class stood up and thanked the teacher before they all excitedly left the classroom, Kagar was no different as she had an appointment with Billy at the commercial district. Having travelled a few times in buses, Kagar confidently boarded a bus that would take her to the commercial district, or C district, as some of the locals called it. As the bus turned into the street for D district, colourful signboards cover up the facade of the stores and buildings lining the street. She alighted the bus and saw Billy already there, and she went up joyfully to her. Billy, I'm here. Gagar, finally, she smiled. I'm hungry, waiting for you. Billy reached out and hugged the blushing Gagar while rubbing her soft fluffy ears. <laughs> Stop, 
Gagar quickly brushed off Billy's hands and covered her ears with her hands. <laughs> Billy grinned. Your ears and tail are just too soft and fluffy for me to control myself. <laughs> Gagar turned redder. Let's go. All right, let's go shopping. Billy's grin went wider as she thought of dressing Gagar up in cute clothes. <laughs> Northern Forest Hydro Dam Power Station Bartley carried a large bucket of water over to the wolves' shed and refilled the water trough for the wolves. He had spent over two hours showering the wolves and pups earlier, and now the wolves looked much better, despite some wounds still visible on their bodies. Both the giant wolves, Link Bartley, and the little dog side wolf pups charged out and tackled him to the ground, and they started licking and sniffing him happily. Good boys and girls, Bartley gave a rare smile. These couple of days, Bartley Schittel had been, the morning after breakfast, he goes to the wolves to feed them, cleans the shed, and brushes their coats, takes them on a walks, and then returns to his cell for the night. The aggressiveness of the wolves had decreased a lot, that some of the other marines could now near and play with the wolf puppies, and the men started nicknaming Bartley the Wolf Whisperer. All right, let's go for a walk around the base, shall we? He gave a whistle, and the wolves and the puppies started to follow him as he headed towards the perimeter fence. The Colony City Hall Plaza The crowd grew larger and larger as more people squeezed into the plaza for summer festival. Large white sails of cloth were hung at regular intervals amongst the streets, and some local musicians were playing linked to the broadcasting systems. Along the streets were lining the stalls with selling drinks, food and trinkets. Everyone was in high spirits as they waited for the festival to start. Soon the princess came onto the stage set before the city hall, and the crowd went wild cheering happily away. Hello, everyone! Shireen beamed happily as the cameras, which projected her onto the large white cloth sails, allowing everyone, including those other districts, events to see her. I hope everyone is excited to be here tonight. Yes! The crowd replied enthusiastically. Everyone here has worked hard, be it as a farmhand, a clerk, a factory worker, or even a cleaner. Shireen gave an opening speech and it is hard work to be shown all around us. Those that came here first will remember the food rationing and lack of necessities, and even proper heating and clothes. Now we have heated homes, plenty of food, running water, clean and safe streets. Shireen smiled at the camera, and now I declare the first summer festival to begin. Enjoy the night of musical performances and dance. A sudden burst of fireworks erupted from City Hall's roof turning the twilight sky bright in flashes of burst of colorful stars. Loud cheers joined the fireworks as the music started playing again, performed by the local musicians, and the people started to party. Northern Forest The Red Dragon was just finishing fighting a giant copper bow twice its length when it heard pops and cracks of thunder in the distance. Ignoring the rumbles of thunder, it roared out flames from its mouth, flash frying and cooking the snake. It used its nimble front claws to tear at the charred skin and scales off before tearing into the yummy, soft, medium-rare meat inside. It feasted halfway when its rumbles of thunder came again, this time longer and louder. Irritated by the thunders, it raised its serpentine head high up and looked into the sky, trying to see if it was going to rain. The rumbles and thunder came again, and it leapt into the air. As it scouted around the surroundings, to its surprise, it saw exploding stars in the far distance lighting up the sky and clouds. It tilted its horned head in confusion and dropped back down to the ground and continued its meal, 
while pondering on what those strange bright colours were. Once it had its pull, the red dragon leapt into the air again. It spread its wings out and headed towards the location where the exploding stars were last seen, leaving behind a burning forest. UNS Singapore Command Bridge The festival yesterday night was a success and everyone off-duty had party till late. The morning shift was only half-manned and the commander Ford was senior commanding officer inside the bridge. He sipped some hot decaf from his mug, wondering if they could come up with a local equivalent of coffee before their stock of it runs out. He rubbed his temples as the party last night took its toll to his head. XO, the operator called out. Sensors are picking up a moving object, 168 kilometers away, heading fast at roughly 110 kilometers per hour, bearing north-northeast to our position. What is it? Do we have a visual? Ford called out. All headache and sleeplessness gone instantly. Negative, the operator replied. We got no assets at that location. Scramble the alert cobras, Ford asked. What other assets do we have on standby? I scrambling the alert cobras, the operator replied as it looked ready. Dragon 1 and Dragon 3, gold, silver, wing, and the Valkyrie 2. Launch Dragon 1 and 3 have gold and silver wing on alert and Valkyrie 2 on standby for airlift support. Ford ordered, give me the UAV and the AO. Aye, XO, the operator replied as she quickly started to send out orders. Call all combat personnel and bring us up to condition yellow, Ford added. Sirens blared out in the pilot's ready room where four alert pilots of bronze wing were lounging around. They jumped up and started grabbing the gear and helmets when the sirens went off in the room and rushed out towards the hangar deck of the UNS Singapore. The color-coded text ran to a final check over the four Cobras parked in the internal hangar, while a few techs started to power up the engine starts, smoothing off the Cobra's engines. The pilots climbed into the cockpits of the massive hangar deck doors and started to yaw wide open, letting a gush of wind. The yellow-jacketed tech started to wave its light ones, signaling for the planes to get into position of launch. Once the lead cobra was hooked into the catapult gear, it jacketed tech gave a salute with a sharp wave off, and the FA-1 cobra was thrown off of the hangar deck with a loud roar. End of chapter Chapter 88 a wild red dragon has appeared. The six alert FA-1 Cobras were thrown out of the flight deck, one after the other, while the rest of the bronze squadron scrambled into action. The roars from the propeller engines woke some of the city's inhabitants that had partied all night as the planes flew over the city before grouping up and heading straight towards the source of the unknown contact. Flight Sergeant Lightseer, Wing Commander of the Bronze Squadron, led the other five planes of his wing towards the north while forming up into pairs. Thunder Chief, this is Bronze Leader and Maintaining Angel 01. Bronze Leader, this is Thunder Chief. You are under my control. Steer 040. Maintain present angle. Over. Roger that, Thunder Chief. Thunder Chief to Bronze Leader. Target position 030, range 90, altitude 1000. Bronze Leader, Roger. UNS Singapore, Command Bridge. XO, our operator called out. Air Force Command has no units out in that area. They are scrambling their fighters into the air now. Got it, Ford answered. Tell Flight Ops to have the rest of the fighters come up to CAP. Duty around the city. Has Bronze Flight made contact yet? Ford asked the flight operator. Bronze Leader, this is Thunder Chief. Target dead ahead. 25. Do you have contact? Over. Bronze Leader, negative contact. Request target attitude. 
Thunder Chief, target no change. Ford frowned as he looked at the radar signatures on the tactical plot. ETA to city airspace. Ten minutes, sir. Alert the war defenses for possible ground-to-air combat. Prepare to intercept. Aye, XO. Skies over the northern sector. The flight sergeant Lightseer turned his head left and right in his cockpit, trying to spot the contact that they were supposed to intercept. But he still couldn't see anything. He could only see thick fog of smoke covering the horizon due to the forest fire. Bronze 6 to all alert fighters. Any visual over? Negative, came back all the replies. Bronze 6 to Thunder Chief. Negative contact. No bogey in sight. He reported back to base. Target dead ahead 15, heading 190, altitude 1000, speed 100, reduced speed. The operator's slightly panicked voice came into his headset. No joy, negative contact. I say again, no joy, request target position. Lightseer grounded his teeth in frustration as he tried to spot the target in the hazy skies. Caution, almost same position, same altitude, use caution, bronze squad, break, break. The operator was clearly panicking as she yelled out. Crap! Lightseer cursed. All fighters break, break, break! He twisted his flight stick to the left and banking his fighter away from the heading and the corner of his eye, he spotted a reddish shadow. Did you anyone see that? he called out. Three, I see it. A youthful, excited voice yelled out over the squadron comms network. It's right under your bellies. The Lightseer rolled his plane to the side and looked out of the cross canopy seeing a rackish, slim, blood-red dragon lazily flapping its wings just meters away from his plane. The dragon was almost two and a half lengths of the cobra and with a wingspan at least twice of his planes. Ridges, spines, and scales plated its body of the dragon, giving it a sharp predator look. The dragon suddenly looked up and roared, sending plumes of flames and smoke out of its nostrils and mouth. It rolled over and dived to the canopy which appeared to wither and burst into flames as the dragon skimmed over the treetops. Holy mother of heavens! Lightseer pulled on the joystick, tilting the fighter away from the dragon. Thunder Chief, contact identified. We got a wild red dragon. UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Dear Chief, contact identified. We got a wild red dragon. The audio came out loud and clear in the speakers and Ford frowned. What do we know about red dragons? He asked the commanding staff around the bridge. Sir, according to the data entered by Magister Thorne, red dragons are similar to Spitfire species, with the ability to spit fire. One of the tactical officers reported, A wild or feral dragons are typically stronger compared to the domesticated ones. Bronze leader, do we engage? Over. Came the voice of Bronze Squadron to the commander over the speakers as he requested instructions. Chase it away, Board said. After a pause, keep it out of the city's airspace. Lightseer cursed when he heard the order. All right, bronze group, listen up. I want three, four, five, and six to fire at its path. Four, sit away from the city. Two, you be on my wing. Yes, boss, the other pilots replied and formed up over the dragon, before diving in one by one and firing the 20mm cannons in the path of the dragon. The heavy bullets exploding and ripping the canopy in the path and flying dragon, causing it to roar out in surprise and it verve away from the path of exploding rounds. The dragon huffed angrily as it plumped away from the strange noisy things that spat small fireballs like magic at it. It glared at the buzzing flying creatures and roared out a fireball at them, which they nimbly dodged. To its surprise, the strange filing noisy monsters did not attack it. They just buzzed around and spat those strange breaths attacks in its path, 
seeming like warning them away from where it wanted to go. It paused its flight, flapping its wings mightily to hover in place over the forest, the heat of its body slowly charring the leaves of the treetops. Two, the expectations and strange noisy creatures did not attack it, constantly circling around while the dragon pondered its next actions. Should it continue to investigate the strange lights it saw last night and risk those strange creatures' attack, or should it go back off and observe? Since it woke up, it hasn't seen any other of its kind and it was not sure how long it had slept. It decided to observe for a while. It flared its wings and settled down onto the canopy of the forest, turning the surrounding trees into firewood, sending sparks and embers and ashes into the air as it burned away the swath of forest and landed in the middle of the charred ground. UNS Singapore Command Bridge The Marine at the armored hatch announced as Captain Blake stepped through, waving off the Marine's salute. At ease, people, Blake swiftly mounted his steps to the tactical plot table. What do we have? At the moment, it's a face-off, Ford replied at the side, pointing to a patch of the forest of the tactical plot map. The dragon has landed and is currently holding position here. What is it doing? Blake looked at the UAV feed being displayed on the screens. Nothing, sir. It's just sitting there watching the bronze squadron, Ford said. We suspect this red dragon is the cause of the forest fire, judging by the amount of heat it's giving away from its body. What actions have we made so far? Blake continued to ask as he updated from the command crew. So far we've not actively engaged it, Ford replied. We just forced it off course. All actions are prevent the dragon from entering the city's airspace. Good. Keep it that way, Blake frowned. What other assets are in place? We currently got one air group over the target. Ford picked up his tablet and checked the deployments. One air group over the city and another air group, Gold Squadron, ETA 8 minutes, inbound from Air Force Command with Valkyries on standby to airdrop infantry if needed. Dragon 1 is also inbound in 20 minutes with Dragon 3 riding wing. City's anti-air defenses are all manned and ready. Civil defense forces are clearing the streets and ensuring everyone is in shelter. Ford continued. 2nd Battalion is being deployed for city defenses, while 1st Battalion is standing by. This world is so fracked up, Blake sighed as he's shaking his head. Can't we have any peace and quiet for a few months? Yeah, I get that too, Ford grimaced. Well, at least the dragon doesn't seem hostile, rather more curious. I think it might have gotten attracted by our fireworks last night. Great, so now we can't even have celebrations without it attracting a dragon or two, Blake sighed again. Any other information on the dragon? Visually, it looks like a between between a mid and a heavyweight, Ford replied. Body is slimmer than Blue Thunder, but longer than Razorbacks we have. It's a feral beast, that's for sure. I want 24-7 surveillance on the dragon. If it so much as takes a jump, I want to know about it, Blake ordered. Clear? Aye, Captain, Ford nodded. The colony, out of defensive wall, North Sector. Lieutenant Joseph rode the cage-like steel cargo elevator up to the top of the North Sector wall. The ride took a minute to reach the top of the wall, with the clacking gears ratting away. The elevator door slid open on the sixth floor. A heavy gust of wind slammed into the open doors, staggering Joseph and his command staff. He stepped out of the elevator and stood on the open roof of the walls that stretched out as far as the eye could see. The width of the roof was roughly five meters wide, allowing plenty of space for the defenders to move on the walls while two rail tracks lined the city side of the parapet. At regular intervals were dual 50 caliber machine nests protected by sandbags, 
or dual 20mm autocannons serving as flak guns. Several marines and militia formed a line and started transferring loads of ammunition crates out of the elevator and loaded them onto the rail carts next to the elevator. Once the carts were full, they were pushed along the tracks by a simple bicycle-like contraption to supply the defensive guns on the wall. Lieutenant Joseph hopped onto the fully loaded ammunition carts and hitched a ride down the tracks. One of the logistics worker hitched the laden cart to the velocipede and started to pedal, pushing the heavy carts along the track. The heavy carts slowly picked up speed and soon zoomed past the defensive guns that were pointed towards the sky. The train finally stopped before the 70mm rocket battery manned by a couple marines, who saluted Joseph as he had gotten off the carts. All good? Lieutenant Joseph asked the two marines manning the 4 by 7 cell rocket launchers. Yes, sir, the two marines grinned. Great view here. All right, stay frosty. Lieutenant Joseph grinned back, copying the human expression. The two marines started to unload the crates of 70mm rockets from the carts and storing them in the nearby protected ammunition bunker. He agreed that the view was stunning. The fields of cleared land laid out on open in perfect squares, and the blue forest in the distance while the horizon was dark with smoke from the raging forest fires. Lieutenant Joseph walked towards the staircase where a guard unlocked the steel barred doors, granting entry to him after checking his credentials. A couple of stories down, Lieutenant Joseph passed by another checkpoint, and after clearing security, he entered the North Sector Command Center. Another lieutenant was in the room filled with support techs as they manned all communications. Sir! The young-looking lieutenant hopped up from the chair when he saw Lieutenant Joseph entering. It's an honor to serve with you. Relax, Vermont. Lieutenant Joseph shook his head with the eager youngster. We're all the same rank here. Yes, sir. Lieutenant Vermont gave a wide grin. Well, I deployed the reinforcements you brought to the respective posts. He pointed to the map on the wall defenses, highlighting out each AA gun or artillery battery. No feral dragon is going to fly into the city without getting shot by at least ten dual 50 caliber heavy machines, four dual 20mm autocannons, and two 70mm rocket batteries. End of chapter. Chapter 189 Dragon to Dragon Talk. Skies over the northern forest. Light Sergeant Lightseer tapped his fuel gauge and triggered his throat mic. Ron's leader, the Thunderchief, Ron's group Ringo for fuel, requesting an RTB. Thunderchief, you are clear to RTB. Gold group inbound to take over cap. Over, uh, red. The operator's voice replied in Lightseer's headset. Ron's lead to bronze group, time to RTB. He ordered and the rest of the wing before casting his last glance at the red dragon, curled up on the charred forest floor. Damn, why HQ doesn't want us to kill it and call it a day? Don't waste of time. The rest of Bronze Group ceased their endless circling and formed up next to Lightseer's planes before they flew back towards the castle of Iron's runway. The dragon eyed the noisy creatures buzzing off away, back towards the strange place where it last heard and seen the strange fires over the night skies. Wondering if it should follow them, when another group of similar noisy being creatures appeared over in the skies, it waved its serpentine tail against its nose and pondered what should it do to these strange creatures. It had lived for a long time, and those noisy creatures were something it had never met before.
and least not before into a deep sleep. It never encountered such strange creatures before. What changes has this world gone into? It thought to itself as it tickled its own nose with the tip of its tail. The colony, outer defensive wall, north sector defense command. Top, Lieutenant Joseph greeted Master Sergeant Pike as he entered the command post. Sir, Pike gave a parade-worthy salute with both of the officers inside and stood at ease next to the tactical tabletop. Looks like our uninvited guest is pretty tame at the moment. Yeah, Lieutenant Joseph agreed. What do you think is planning? Think we can communicate with it? Sir, the other, younger you, Lieutenant, Fairmont, spoke up. Why don't we just kill it? Pike patted the officer on his back and said, Sir, if you notice, that creature's presence just torched an entire forest almost ten times the size of the city. Now imagine what will happen if you make it angry. Uh, oh, I, I, I see. The younger officer blushed in embarrassment. I did not think of that. Well, it's a learning experience, Lieutenant Joseph winked at Pike. You get wiser as you get older. <laughs> Pike grinned and leaned over the UAV video stream. I think I'd better head down and take a look personally with the dragon. See if we can understand each other. You speak draconic. The Lord Fairmont was fairly surprised at Pike's words. Nope, but I got a universal translator. Skies over the northern forest. Blue Thunder flapped his wings mightily as his previous wounds mostly recovered as he was happily to be able to stretch his wings out, rather than being cooped up in his pen. Blue, don't overexert yourself. The speaker next to his ears crackled to life. Light Sergeant Stamford Motherly's voice sounded worried and tense. Your wingtip bone has just healed. I don't want you to fraction it again. Yes, ma'am. Blue Thunder sighed rolling his dinner-plate-sized eyes upward while tilting his serpentine head back and replying to Stamford seated on his back. You nag too much. You're right, Stamford growled, stamping his booted feet on the hardened scales of Blue Thunder. Don't come crying to me when you break your wings again. Blue Thunder turned his head back, facing the front, acting like he didn't hear the word that Stamford said, and even tried to whistle innocently, which he failed badly much to the laughter of the rest of the crew. Stamford gave a sigh to the childish antics of Blue, wondering such a big and powerful beast like Blue could still act like a child. Okay, war face time, we are nearing the target. In the distant horizons, they approached. The skies were dark and covered with thick cloud of haze, where random erratic strobes of lightning and thunder could be seen and heard in the firestorm. I see Gold Squadron, Corporal Barkley yelled as he peered through the thick haze, spotted the blue-gray dot circling over an area. Damn, your eyes are sharp, Stamford praised as he tried to pick out the aircraft against the gray haze in the skies. I can't see crap in this haze. I see them, Blue Thunder gave a grin, displaying an array of scary-looking teeth swords. And I see the Red Dragon, too. All right, bring us down nearby. Not too close, Stamford said. I don't want you to get into a fight with it. He gave a stomp with his boot on Blue Thunder's back. You here? Okay. Blue Thunder sighed disappointedly. It was easy for me to win, you know. It's smaller than me and looks weak, too. Weak? Stamford rolled his eyes upward. That thing set a whole forest on fire. Can you do that, you big idiot? Yeah. It's a small issue, Blue Thunder tilted his head up in disdain. I could flatten it easily with just one arm. You better stop having ideas of fighting, Stamford stomped harder on Blue Thunder's back. 
We know that feral dragons are magically stronger than domesticated dragons like you. We don't know how powerful, but I'm sure that you can't win with just one arm. <laughs> Blue Thunder gave a snort and kept quiet, flaring his wings as he came gliding to a descent. As they came lower towards the scorched forest, they felt the temperature increasing rapidly. Um, it's hot. Deck yelled over the roaring wind as Blue swooped into the land and charred ground. Blue Thunder gave a grunt as he felt his sense of unease at the temperature of the surroundings. Hmm, maybe you're right. We should be friends. The air was thick with smoke and ashes, and not long the men sweating in their flight suits. Look, it has noticed us, but it's sitting there. I think you can talk to it or something, Stanford asked as he cradled his shotgun, the metal barrel turning warmer by the second. I don't speak draconic if that's what you want me to talk with it. Blue raised up his head, sitting up on his hindquarters and staring at the red dragon in the distance. What? Stamford frowned. You're a dragon, and you don't know dragon talk. Well, I grew up with people since I was born. Blue Thunder raised his head up indignantly. No one taught me draconic. Stamford shook his head helplessly. Well, try something. Make it go away without it getting angry with us, okay? Blue Thunder turned his head and stared wide-eyed at the crew chief. Seriously, you want me to growl or bark at it, expecting it to understand that we want no harm and just, just wants to go away. What happens if my growl means fark you and draconic? Blue Thunder hissed. No way, you go do it. Stamford shook his head again and turned to deck their radio man. Well, call it in. Tell them that we have a wee problem. Northern Forest the red dragon narrowed its golden eyes as it watched a blue-scaled dragon landing a short distance away, and a few of those tiny, inferior walking meatbags climbed down from the dragon's black and started to converse in some kind of crude language, to and fro. It hissed in agitation, sniffing the other dragon's scent and tasting its bloodline and the air with its tongue. After a while, it spat in disappointment, for it found the bloodline of the blue and red scaled before it lacking despite it having some bloodlines similar to itself. The red dragon cocked its head as it continued to observe the body language of the dragon that was larger but with a huge inferior bloodline with small group of walking meat. It found it strange that despite the weak bloodline of the species would listen to and serve as a mount to the inferior walking meat bags. It rose up to its full height and was about to interrupt with a strange, chittering conversation between the lesser dragon and the walking meats when suddenly several strange, rumbling creatures came into sight and more of that skinny-looking walking meats climbed down from the strange, blue-gray, purring creatures. Top! Stanford yelled out in relief. We got a small communication problem here. His face was slightly red as his flight suit was unzipped all the way down, as waves of heat could be felt radiating off the strange dragon. Damn, it's hot here, Pike snarled. All right, boys, space out. Stop cluster fricking here. Firefighting teams, take your positions. A couple of the trucks started up their engines and spaced themselves out. The men, some dressed in silvery full-body suits, while others in yellowish suits, started to unroll deflated rubber hoses that were salvaged from the ship's firefighting equipment and repurposed into trucks. They quickly attached hoses to the water tanks and contained a mixture of foam and water. The electric motors hummed as they built up pressure and the firefighters formed an ad hoc perimeter around the Red Dragon. Sergeant Stamford, Pike walked up to the sweaty crew chief and gave a pat on the snout of Blue Thunder as a wave greeting. What's the situation? 
Well, this fat lizard here doesn't know how to speak dragon. Stanford gave the dramatic shook of his head, while Blue Thunder gave him an eye roll and a snort of disdain in reply, so we can't speak to the dragon there. Not to mention, that thing is too hot to approach, Stanford added. We're like two, three hundred meters away, yet the heat waves it's giving off are pretty tough to handle without thermal insulation gear. Well, fear not, Pykrand, I bought some toys. He popped the black carry case onto his knee and opened it, displaying a set of universal translated devices. I got some text on standby for IT support, and we just hooked this baby up to Blue's intercom, and we can try some basic communications with the Red Dragon. Why spend so much time for a dragon? Blue snorted again. It barely fits the standards for heavyweight fighting dragon. He puffed out his chest and straightened its back, trying to make his shoulder as broad as possible. Don't jelly here. Stamford slapped the puffed-up belly over the belly in the effect and stopped showing off. But it's true, Blue lowered his head. It's just a feeble-looking thing. Blue, Stamford snapped. It's a dragon beats you up. I wouldn't help you. Blue settled down on all fours and pouted at the side. I'm just saying, he spoke in a low voice to Beck at the rest of the crew who tried to control their laughter. The red dragon frowned as it watched the lesser dragon puff up and glaring at it, but with a gesture of one of the meat bags, it deflated and appeared meek before it. Some of the walking meats appeared to be in a merriment and treatment. No matter how weak the dragon bloodline has fallen, to be meek and controlled by those interior walking meats, what a disgrace to the great draconic race. It roared angrily, and with its head held up proudly, it strolled mightily and majestically over to the startled group of meatbags and disgracefully lesser dragon. Clearly, a youngling from away it acted and held itself. I will teach the younglings what it is meant to be king of all beasts in this world, it thought as it stood before clearly frightened and cowered meatbags. It radiated waves of heat and intensity, turned the surrounding temperature up by dozens and dozens of degrees before opening its roar. Give that freaking dragon something to drink. End of chapter. Chapter 190. Misunderstanding Dragons. The red dragon stomped mightily towards the pathetic meatbags and confused-looking youngling. It gave another roar, wanting to impose its dragon fear onto the lesser creatures, when suddenly a few jets of cold liquid and some thick foamy substance landed on its body. Instantly, steam erupted out of the water and got into contact with the superheated scales, while the firefighting foam thickly coated its body. The dragon gave out a yelp in confusion as it tried to back away from the water jets spraying those meat bags. It raised its wings to block the water sprays and tried to spit some fireballs out only to swallow a large mouthful of water and foam. It started to cough and splutter in shock and distaste, and in its haste it tripped over on its own tail and flopped backwards in a tangle. Blue Thunder laughed and quickly muffled his laughter by burying his head with his wings when both Pike and Stamford glared at him. Is it so funny? <laughs> Blue Thunder nearly rolled around on the ground with glee. Serves it right. All right, cease fire, Pike roared out, commanding the men to shut their hoses up. We only got so much of the water to waste. 
The drenched dragon sneezed and shivered, looking like a wet dog. The surrounding temperature had dropped drastically and someone had just turned off the heater. It glared resentfully at Blue Thunder, who quickly avoided its glare and swallowed the laughter boiling in its throat. <coughs> so, what do we do now? Blue Thunder whispered. I thought we were not going to make it angry. It looks mightily angry now. Can you just shut up? Stamford felt a major headache coming and it was due to the increasing humidity. You are not doing any better. Blue Thunder covered his mouth from his wings and ducked low. Sorry. Meanwhile, Pike strolled up before the wet, indignant-looking wet dragon, which was baring its teeth at him. Pike looked pretty chill and unconcerned, while Blue Thunder whispered in awe. Doesn't Top feel the heat? Is he really cold-blooded and made out of ice inside? Stamford gave Blue Thunder a WTF look and asked, Now where did you hear all that nonsense? From the marines, Blue Thunder's eyes were as round as giant saucers as he gazed with awe and worship at Pike. They say that he once walked through hell and fire as if it was just a stroll in the park. Truly! Stop listening to those marines' housewives' gossip and nonsense, Stamford rubbed his aching head. Guards, you're older than all of them, yet you're still so gullible. But they swear it's true, Blue Thunder gave a gulp. I even remember seeing him on the walls. He ordered those firefighters to spray their magic at one of my old wingmates. Scary. Stanford shook his head at Blue Thunder's adoration of awe at Pike, thinking that Pike was just wearing an environmental suit that regulates temperature underneath his camera fatigues. He didn't have the heart to break Blue Thunder's image of his idol. Stop listening to gossips or I'll cut your cheese fries rations, Stanford warned sternly. Oh, no, not my cheese fries. Pike stared eye to eye evenly with the red dragon and growled, You bring the heat up again, and I get my boys to give you a nice dose of fire foam. You clear? While he gestured to his men with the hoses. The red dragon's eyes narrowed, and it followed the gesture of the strange meat bag on the sides, where several more similar-looking meats were holding some long, wiggling things. It remembered that spray some sort of liquid and water, then made it cold and wet. It growled back at the strange, unfearing meat bag, who alone stood before it, speaking in some strange, harsh language. Did this puny meat bag dare to try and threaten him? What insolence! The red dragon braced itself back on all fours and was about to pounce again when a strange meat bag yelled something, and water sprays hammered the several sides. It squeaked in surprise and discomfort, backing away from the water sprays, only for the meat bag gave a wave and the water disappeared. Pike gave a sigh. Blue! Open it down. But Sarge, I don't like getting very wet too. Blue whined back. Blue, you want to know how wet you can get when I get my hands on you? Pike growled. Sir, yes sir, wait, I mean no sir. Blue Thunder felt a chill down his spine as he quickly stood at attention, mimicking the marine's parade stance. I go to pin that dragon down, but please don't spray me too. Five. Four. Three. Pike started to tap his feet in annoyance while looking at his wristwatch. Two. I'm on it! Blue Thunder cried in panic as he swooshed, and he leapt over the heads of everyone with two bounces and landed on top of the shocked red dragon. Excuse me. The surprised red dragon barely managed to resist all 40 tons of weight landed on him. 
It screamed out in shock and pain as Blue Thunder tried to saddle on its back. Keep still, and it'll be over soon. Blue Thunder roared as he tried to hold down the struggling red dragon without seriously injuring it. Ow! Blue Thunder cursed, and as an errant red-scaled wing slapped his face, you nearly took out my eye. Ah! The red dragon managed to squirm on top of its back and faced Blue Thunder, snapping at his face with powerful jaws, while Blue Thunder managed to pin his arms and legs with his own. Stop that! Blue Thunder suddenly got enough and roared mightily directly at the red dragon, who surprisingly flinched back from his roar. Stop! When the strange ugling suddenly landed on his back, it felt shocked and that it froze for a second, which allowed the youngling to force it onto the floor with an embarrassing pose. When it finally regained its senses and struggled angrily, thinking, what a disrespectful youngling who laid his dirty hands on it. But as it managed to flip itself over, the youngling had pinned its arms down with superior weight and roared into its face. It looked at shocked at disrespectful youngling and growled, narrowing its eyes, and a rumble rose in its chest as it prepared to unleash a breath attack. Oh, freck! Bryke was watching from the side and saw the situation going sour. Spray that dragon now! Instantly, water and foam were hosed directly down the dragon's face, stunning it and making it choke on an unintentionally swallowed water and foam. It started to struggle wildly under blue thunder, which tilted his head as far away from the water sprays as possible. Um, guys, Blue Thunder called out while holding down the red dragon. I think that's enough water for the day. Guys, cease fire, Pike roared and strolled up towards the two dragons once the water and foam had died down. Blue Thunder gave a sigh of relief and peered down at the choking dragon underneath him. I think it's dying. Pike took a look at the slumped head of the red dragon and yelled, Blue, give it CPR. CPR? Blue Thunder looked at Pike in surprise. What is CPR? Ugh, Pike frowned. We'll get it. Just use both your arms, put them like this and press on his chest of it. He demonstrated against the ground. Press them down on the lungs and force the water and foam out. Um, okay. I try. Blue Thunder scratched his head and mimicked Pike's actions and pressed down hard in the chest of the red dragon. Hmm? What is it? Pike asked, seeing the expression on Blue Thunder's face. It was surprisingly easy to read his facial expressions, thought Pike. Um, I think it's a female, Blue Thunder appeared, looked embarrassed. Um, should I even be touching her br- br- I mean chest? She's choking on foam, you idiot, Stanford yelled as it came up next to them. Force it out of her throat and lungs, or she chokes to death, you big dummy. Oh yes, of course, Blue Thunder cleared his throat and went back to pressing the chest of the dragon. Roll her over on her side, Stamford yelled. Deck, grab the first aid box from Blue. Blue Thunder gently rolled the red dragon on her side, watching with a mix of emotions as the red dragon coughed up a large mouthfuls of water, foam, and some blood. Oh dear. Since when do you care about modesty? Stamford asked while he grabbed the listening horn of the first aid box and held it against the heaving chest of the red dragon, listening to her lungs. It sounds clear. Might still have some water inside. Open her jaws, Blue, he ordered, and waited while Blue Thunder pried open the red dragon's jaws. Massage your throat upwards and see if you can smooth any trapped water or foam out. I watched enough drama to understand modesty and molest. Blue Thunder snorted while he gently rubbed the dragon's throat. 
and after a short while the red dragon gave a mighty heave and vomited out another large mouthful of water and foam with some blood mixed together. There now, all good now. Ruth Thunder gently patted the back of the red dragon. I don't want to get sued. Phew, looks like it all expelled out, Stafford said, as he pressed a listening horn against the side of the red dragon, looking around her in surprise as the people and Blue Thunder patted her back. Seriously, I'm going to ban all of your dramas. Blue Thunder stuck out his tongue at Stamford before he gave his best dragon smile at the shocked and confused-looking red dragon, which stared wide-eyed back at them before her eyes narrowed in anger as she slapped Blue Thunder across the face with a wing and flipped him off her body. She growled in anger and started at the meat bag surrounding her with a disrespectful youngling and mounted her. Filthy, low blood, you dare lay your hands on me. Disgraceful. Pike frowned and stopped his men from spraying more water and foam at the clearly angry red dragon. The surrounding temperature was slowly raising again as the red dragon regained his senses. Pike pointed to himself and said, Pike, before he pointed to the red dragon, who glared in his direction with hateful eyes. She turned her head when the meat bags she recognized a fearless one that approached and tried to threaten her with those magic water spells, said something while pointing at himself. I? Are they trying to talk to her, she thought. She knew of those hairless meat bags he used to offer her food and sacrifices in the past in those days. Only a handful barely knew enough of her tongue to communicate properly with her. She glanced to the side, seeing those strange dressed meat bags with the strange contraptions that barely gave off any magical powers, but were powerfully effect to suppress her fire element. She also knew that she blacked out for a while, only to wake up to them surrounding her and that, uh, disgraceful youngling on top of her, rubbing and touching her body. As she thought of the scene, her anger flared up, and she gave off a growl at the clearly cowed youngling on the side. She turned and looked at the strange, fearless meatbag who was called Pike, and started to point at her without any respect at his posture, and seemed to ask what her name was. Rastras the Red, Bride of the Volcanic Dragons, she proudly puffed out her chest despite the pain in her chest, which she did not know how she had gotten injured. Rattas, Rasta, Rastras, the meat bag, Pai, repeated, and then said, Rastras. Rastras was surprised that he could pronounce her name properly, while the tries and nodded in approval. Good, you'll make a good servant for me. End of chapter. Chapter 191. Here we go again. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain, ground team led by Master Sergeant Pike has established communications with the Dragon. One of the operators reported from his station. Great! Blake nodded in his seat. See if we can entice the Dragon into our ranks. Feigning that, make sure that the Dragon does not approach within 150 kilometers of any of our outposts and the city. Commander Ford raised an eyebrow and asked, You want to recruit that Dragon? Why not? Blake smiled. We have ample food now, and we are lacking in bodies. Another dragon! Ford folded his arms as he leaned against the tactical plot table. Seriously? Yes, it is still a sentient being, Blake replied. It might not be able to work in some industries, but it can still be useful in aviation sector. Not to mention that their crap actually provides quite a bit of useful chemical compounds. Ha! <laughs> 
If Blue Thunder and the rest of the dragons heard you hire them for their crap, Ford laughed. I wonder what they would think about then. Blake grinned. Well, we did mine the crap of their ancestors for saltpeter, not to mention if this dragon can just produce thermal heat naturally, there is a lot of applications we can use it for. Sir? A voice called out from the command bridge hatched and Blake saw Lieutenant Tavar from intelligence making his way over. I might have some bad news here. Damn. Blake gestured him over to the tactical plot table. What is it? Tavar geared in his tablet to sync up the tactical table before he displayed several images. As you know, we run a four-tier defensive surveillance and detection network. The outermost layer is set at 200 kilometers. This layer is covered by our remaining UAVs. The second layer is covered by the Cobras and combat air patrols roughly around a 150-kilometer radius around our borders. Tavar continued. The third layer is covered by the dragons with a 50 to 100 kilometer band. And finally, our final line is covered by motion sensors seeded at key locations and marine ground patrols. Tavar finished uploading all the files into the system. As with the incident with the goblin invasion fleet a few months back, I had tasked the UAV to do a recon pass every day. Tavar selected an image and enlarged it on screen. This is taken four days ago, this three days ago, and this one was two days ago, and this was yesterday. The images show goblin ships appearing at the wet docks of Goblin Island. This looks like a military build-up, Ford exclaimed. Where did all these ships come from? We suspect that they have a dry docks or construction ships hidden inside the sea caves dotting the interior of the cove. That is why we did not spot them earlier, Tavor explained. This clearly shows the goblins are preparing for something, and we counted roughly 30 dagger-class gannies and 10 sword-class loops. It is way lesser than what they have thrown at us previously, Tavar said. My department take on this and that the raiding party or pirates setting out for a plunder. Any signs for our new friends from the Isles? Blake asked. Could the sea goblins be targeting them? Most likely, yes, but they seem not to be specifically aiming for our trade ships, Tavar said. After all, we do spot one or two convoys of the Isle Merchant's ships passing by us. The trade deal with the Isles has still a week or so before they are supposed to deliver their promise. Ford reminded everyone, as for the payment of weapons and armor, we have them all already and stored in climate-controlled warehouses in Far Harbor. Even the glass they ordered is completed and is awaiting transportation to the warehouses. Put up more eyes to look out at the Isle ships, Blake ordered. Also, continue keeping tabs on the goblin in Ireland. When that goblin fleet sails, I want to know about it. Clear? Yes, sir. Northern Forest. In the past two days, several tents had sprung up around the ruined forest, where two disgruntled dragons lay watching each other cautiously. The temperature had returned to normal, but the humidity was still high, making Flight Sergeant Stamford easily irritated. Come on, Blue! Stamford stood before Blue Thunder with the top half of his flight suit tied up around his waist, exposing the white tee while his arms were on his hips. Keep talking to her. You know the translator will only work if you two keep talking. But she's scary. Blue Thunder bowed his head low. I mean, look at those eyes of hers. Actually, it's quite pretty, but she wants to kill me. Oh, for God's sake, Stamford rubbed his sweaty face. You're a goddamn dragon. You are a male and you are larger than her. How can you be so scared still? But females are hard to understand. 
Blue Thunder whimpered. I watched enough dramas to know that. All right, I'm cutting off your hours of entertainment rooms. We'll be cut, Stamford added. Those damn soap operas are filling your brains with nonsense. No, I'm still watching Days of Our Lives. Blue Thunder moaned. Please, I do it. I'll talk to her now, okay? Stamford looked stunned for a while. What the frick? Why are you watching that crap of a soap opera? It's interesting, Blue Thunder grinned. There's almost everything inside from love to family death, even curses and vampires. <laughs> Great insight to the human life. Blue, I'm going to have to have a serious talk about what shows you can watch later. Stamford shook his head helplessly. I wonder which idiot uploaded that series into the database. Go talk to her now. Talk more, Stamford yelled at Blue and tried to keep away. He whined. Do I have to? You want me to get top over here to have a heart-to-heart -heart talk? Stamford decided to use Pike's reputation. Okay, it's okay, he's busy. Blue Thunder moaned quickly. I'll do it now. And he'd hopped over towards the red dragon that was lying serenely on his side, watching the ongoings around her with a mild interest. Hi there. Blue Thunder gave a forced, cheerful greeting, and he approached the red dragon called Rastraz, who glared at him with her golden eyes. Um, how are you doing? Rastraz rolled at the male youngling who came up without any proper etiquette or sight woundwardly. The young ones are always the ones that cause troubles. She had taken the past couple of days to assess the situation. The strange meatbags appear to be similar, but there are actually two different races— the long-eared people and the short-eared ones. She remembered encountering the long-eared people many, many moons back, and they worshipped her like a god. It would appear that the descendants of her followers had probably forgotten her over time while she was asleep in the volcano. If not, those of her followers had passed on to the next life, and these are of another nation. These walking meats were so short-lived, thought Rastras as she glanced at the antics of these people around her. She turned her attention back to the youngling and wondered how did they proud race now willingly serve under those that once pray and worship them as gods. Blue Thunder sighed and turned his head around and hissed at Stamford, who was eyeing him like a hawk. She's not talking. Highway to Far Harbor. Blake sat shotgun on a jeep as his driver gunned the engine down the superhighway towards Far Harbor. The newly constructed work was like a miracle to the locals as they finished the work on the road just a month's time. The freshly paved highway provided a much faster transportation route for the construction materials to travel up and down the colony to Far Harbor while the split away links to the highway towards the mines. Several trucks rumbled past the jeep carrying ores and other processed materials towards the industrial parks or the hungry factories to reduce everything that they needed. Blake smiled contently and felt, despite all, that he had done pretty well for these people here. Just several months ago, when they first crash-landed here, there was nothing and now a thriving city and industries were built and the food was no longer worries on his mind. In just another two more months, it would mark the first year anniversary of the crash landing on this planet, thought Blake. Damn, time flies. The jeep soon arrived at its destination and Blake hopped off, leaving instructions for his driver before he headed towards the nondescript structure built along the harbor, with part of its structure out to the sea. A couple of security officers saluted him as he approached, and the sturdy-looking metal door swung open to admit him in. 
coating air greeted him as he stepped into the building and then sat to the sun. Captain, the youngish-looking sailor leading a small party of other personnel stood at attention and saluted. Senior Spaceman Mason, sir. At ease, gentlemen, Blake said after returning the salutes. What have you got for me? Come this way, sir, Mason gestured to Blake to follow him. We have successfully tested two half-sized prototypes and we're beginning to develop the third prototype following the feedback and test results of the first two. How much time is still needed before we can have a combat-ready model? Blake asked as they entered the dry construction slip where two wooden speedboats sat in the support moorings. We need about two months or so, at least, Mason replied as he did some mental calculations. There are still some technical issues that we need to iron out before we can start to mass-produce the boats. That's taking too long, Blake frowned. Any chance of having prototypes of our base model for use within a week? A week? Mason's jaw dropped slightly. Sir, that's impossible. We barely just learned how to build a speedboat hull. Never mind. Disregard what I said. Just continue with your work, Blake replied. How about the wreck that we salvaged off the coast? Well, if you want that ship to commence operations, Mason brought Blake to another entrance which led them to a ship. It's seaworthy now, thanks to Amar's skills. You know that ship Carpenter we saved. Yes, I remember him, Blake nodded, but he didn't return to his homeland with the Isle ships. Nope, seems like he got nothing much there, Mason replied, and the stuff we're doing here is way more exciting for him too. The wreck that Blake saw in the video of the images taken like two different ships. The rebuilt and reworked wreck now had a fresh coat of paint and a layer of steel plating covering its outer hull, and the mast and the sails were all removed. The top decks were remodeled and the superstructure now sits behind the fore console, and the quarter deck is a single black funnel jutting out. The wooden spars on the blow spurt was even figurehead were removed. The fresh coat of sea-grey paint made the ship look totally unrecognizable as a former sailing ship of the Isles. This became Chief Matt and his department's pet project, Mason explained as he showed off the ship to Blake. They are working on the internals now, giving her a power plant and putting in that new techno-magic thingy that the chief had worked out with the students at the magic school. Once it's done, it'll be powered by a single 2,750-horsepower triple expansion reciprocating steam engines with a single-shaft propulsion system, Mason said. It should give out roughly 16 knots of top speed with a range of 3,500 nautical miles at 12 knots. Weapons, Blake asked as he walked to the gangplank to the ship. Chief is looking at putting in two of your new 3-inch 23s, one on the forecastle and one at the stern, Mason replied. There will be couplers mounts for the dual 20 mics on both sides of the ship and a 50 caliber mounting on the anti-air and anti-boarding actions. Where's the chief? Blake asked as he stood on the deck looking at the two-story superstructure. He should be down below the decks working on something, Mason said. Need me to get him? Of course. I want to get the ship up and running ASAP. End of chapter. Chapter 192. Chief of Naval Operations. UNS Singapore Conference Room. All right, everyone, please settle down. Commander Ford clapped his hands together to bring the meeting into order. Quick summary for those not in the loop. We got a possible goblin pirates that will commence raids within the sphere of influence. 
Now this might not be much of an issue before, Blake spoke up, but now that we're looking to be trading partners with the Isles, therefore we need to combat piracy now to prevent it becoming an issue in the future. Another thing is that we only have a single salvage ship that being converted into an armored cruiser or ironclad. Blake continued, a single warship is mostly new and experimental tech has no support vessels and backup. Our fast attack craft concept would not be able to be implemented in time to defend against pirates and raiders, Blake added, so the core of the fighting will be placed on a single ironclad that we have now until we can produce more ships. So, how about we build some maritime patrol bombers? Air Force Commander Tommy raised a question. It can do coastal patrols and reconnaissance too, and if the feature is needed, we can also perform anti-submarine warfare. Sounds interesting, Blake replied. Draw up a proposal for it. Good to have more cards in our hands, even if we couldn't produce any of the equipment now. What else is happening now? Blake asked around the table. Autumn planting will begin next week. Mostly tubers and mushroom types of crops, which can survive over the winter and be ready to harvest when spring comes, Princess Shireen gave her report. The strawberries provided by you humans are also doing surprisingly well in the markets as also easy to grow over the autumn and winter. This year it'll be a different than usual, Shireen smiled charmingly. It'll be a busy winter. Why is that? Blake asked. Well, previously the farms could not provide any food during the cold months and most people stay indoors to conserve heat. Shireen explained. Most people shut themselves in during winter, but with central heating, warm clothes, plenty of food and jobs in the factories and stalls, people will be more inclined to work during winter. I see. That is a good sign, Blake replied. I guess. Well, a city that doesn't sleep is a thriving city, Ford said. Now, since we have food production sorted out, how's the military side progressing? Major Frank nodded and said, Sir, currently we are preparing for the third batch of marine recruits to be processed and training will begin soon, but I think this will be the last batch of recruits that we can recruit without putting a drain in our manpower resources. As of now, our current manning of 842 combat operation marines and another 357 non-combat support staff. Frank read out the numbers. This upcoming batch of recruits will be roughly around 450 men, bringing the total military personnel to around 1,650. Our total population is holding at 10,000, with the addition of 117 goblins and 268 slaves that joined us. Frank continued, The marines take up 1.6k of the total population, and that is not counting the police, air force, and the formation of the navy. If we add the rest of the armed forces in, at least 40% of our total population is allocated to armed forces. Frank said, leaving us with what? Less than 6,000 civilians to support an industry, and most of them are females. We have less than 400 children ages below 16, Dr. Sharon spoke up, and our current birth rate is low, bloody low in fact. We need to introduce measures to increase our population for the next 15 years, Dr. Sharon said, or we will be reduced to an aging population in the future with no young adults to support our growing infrastructure in the future. Even if we mass recruit other races like orcs and goblins into our ranks, we still require people to make babies if we want to sustain a nation in the future, Dr. Sherrod warned. I will advise that we implement measures to encourage people to start making babies soon. Got it, Blake nodded. Major Frank, this will be the last batch of recruits for the time being. 
only recruit later on to recover combat losses. And as for the population growth in babies, Blake looked at Shireen and Dr. Sharon. Can both of you work with the public health services in the city hall to come up with an incentive to entice people to start having families early? Offer them government subsidies, housing, grants, education, aid, medical, and whatever else you can think of without impacting our current industrial needs and workforce. Blake threw out some ideas to both of them, set up a committee to oversee all of these. Okay, Shireen replied and nodded to Dr. Sharon. Now, barring all of that, Blake continued, I want Chief Matt to lead the project on fully restoring the ship to combat-ready status. We do not know when the goblin pirates will act or where they will hit, Blake said. Commander Ford. <clears throat> Ford turned to the display screen which showed the coastal map of the region of icons that vary colors, dotting the surface. This is roughly the range that we calculate a typical goblin raiding ship has. The highlighted an orange circle around the skull, which had text Goblin City. Now these yellow dots are surface contacts that our radar has picked up over the past couple days. Ford indicated another group of yellow dots scattering all over the sea area. We believe that these are merchant convoys or ships, but it might also be pirates or other things that we are not aware of. According to our investigations, the Goblin Sea has only two reasons for suitable sail, and that is mid-spring to mid-summer and early autumn to end of autumn, Ford explained. Any other times, the sea is rough and covered in ship-killing storms. Now a majority of these yellow contacts do not hug along the coast while the nearest ships still keep roughly a hundred kilometers distance from land, Ford continued. Therefore, we rarely spot any of them unless the recon flights spot them on the radar reports them. We estimate that our friends will be conveying the trade agreements to us within the next two weeks. Ford traced the line south to the coast icon that said Far Harbor. Therefore, to prevent any loss of deliveries, we need to ensure our ships are up and running within two weeks. Ford finished. Chief Matt frowned. Within two weeks to ensure everything is running and also completing ship trials. It will take a miracle to do that, sir. Chief, Ford nodded. Yes, provided you handle it only with your department. Yeah, but who else has the expertise to work on ships here? Chief Matt raised an eyebrow. We have some, um, people with skills in that regards to that. Blake spoke up. Goblins. What? You want to put goblins to work on the ship? Chief Matt half rose to his chair. This is obscene. Chief, Commander Tommy interjected. They do quite well so far in my Air Force. Still, we don't know what murderous schemes they might come up with in their minds. Chief Matt growled. We can't fully trust those things. Chief, I will agree with your points, Ford stepped up and said, but we do believe that with their help, we can vastly cut down the time needed to retrofit the ship since most of them have some sort of technical skills and are into machines. And if they prove themselves well, Blake added, we can integrate them into the ship construction work, which will help boost the industry. But sir, Chief Matt frowned, I understand that we are lacking skilled work labor, but to use them to construct warships, which under the military code is classified as top secret, and not to mention the same warships will be used against their own kind. Why would they be willing to help us? With the chances of sabotage so high, it will take double the time for us to conduct sea and combat trials, as we have to double-check and ensure everything that the goblins touched is clean. Chief Matt continued to argue his points. I see, Blake frowned. How about if we limit them to work on modular components? 
Modular components, Chief Matt repeated. You want to install components in modularly? Wouldn't it be faster to repair damages and losses? Blake asked. Plus, everything is modular. The ship is easier to upgrade in the future. But most of the ship is being nailed down or welded down, Chief Matt replied. Only parts that can be modular will be the superstructure, engines, and the weapon systems. Then we do that for now, Blake said. Let the goblins work on the non-combat systems and have the quality control team to inspect their work. Aye, Chief nodded. I guess we can do that. As for the Chief of Naval Operations, Blake grinned. I'm putting Commander Ford in charge. Huh? Ford looked surprised. You want me to be Chief of Naval Ops? Yep, Blake continued smiling. You do just fine. All naval projects are now under your scrutiny. I... Ford looked around the room where everyone smiled and clapped. Thank you, sir. I will not fail you. Good. Then Project Ironclad is in your hands, CNO. Blake smiled. Northern Forest. Blue Thunder's tummy rumbled as he laid on the nose sniffing before the cook wagon. I'm hungry, he whined at the cook. Please wait. The poor cook was terrified by the sword-sized teeth-filled mouth whining next to him. It'll be done soon. Blue Thunder sighed and settled down for a long wait, smelling the aroma of the roasting potatoes waffling out from the huge specialized tumbler oven that looked even 20th century cement mixer. What doing you? Rustras spoke in a poor English and landed next to Blue Thunder, who shot up in surprise. Huh? Blue Thunder, blinded by the rapidly in panic, while keeping a safe distance from her. I, I'm hungry. Hungry. Rastras looked at Blue Thunder, who shyly rubbed his tummy in mimic hunger. Oh. She turned her head to look at the strange rotating drum, where an even more terrified cook sweated under the wave of heat emitted from her body. What's that? She pointed. Um, nothing. Blue Thunder turned his head away. Nothing. Rastras frowned and leaned closer to Blue Thunder, who tried to edge away from her. Nothing. She noticed his teeth looked pretty clean, and he doesn't have any overwhelming stench coming from his mouth. Hmm? Um, potatoes are done. The cook cried out and stopped the magic heat runes on the used along prior to unscrew the top of the hatch, where a large white barrel was placed. Steaming potatoes rolled out from the tumbler and into a barrel, filling it up. Blue Thunder's eyes went gooey as he stared at the creamy-looking potatoes. A strand of saliva started to drip down his open jaws. The cook and the assistant soon divided the hot potatoes into another barrel and started to mix in sour cream, yellow butter, and bits of fried lard. All right, it's done. Yay! Blue Thunder carefully picked up the hot barrel of potatoes and blew it, cooling it down before he started to feast on the baked potatoes. Oh... Would be nicer if it was fried with cheese sauce. Ristras blinked her golden eyes at Blue Thunder, who happily chomped down on the strange offering the meat bags gave him, wondering what it was that made him so happy about it. She gracefully stretched her neck over the barrel and offered the meat bags, who quickly made their way to give us a sniff. It doesn't smell too bad. She looked at the presentation of the food, which she assumed is something to eat and frowned, finding it lacking in colors and looks. Lumpy bits of cream, colored things, and bits of fats and oil were all mixed together. She looked at Blue Thunder, who was clutching the barrel with his arms and licking the inside, happily, and wondered if it really tastes that good. Blue Thunder noticed her hesitating and asked, You don't want to eat it? 
His eyes glowed with expectation. Ristras frowned again and carefully picked up the barrel, and then closed her eyes before taking a bite of the unappealing food. Oh! End of chapter. Chapter 193. Project Ironclad. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor, Dry Dock 1. One, two, one, two. A couple of goblins bearing a piece of steel armor plating as large as them over their heads marched off down to the workshop to hand it to the next station, their short, stubby feet matching the time with their chanting, One, two, one, two. The shriek of a power tool screamed out amidst the sounds of high-pitched giggles and laughter made Commander Ford and Chief Matt glad that they wore protective earmuffs when they came into the assembly workshop for inspection. Looks like everything is going according to schedule, Commander Ford yelled over the sounds of the heavy machinery, laughter, and what suspiciously sounded like heavy metal music in the background. All is well with Project Ironclad. Yes, Chief Matt replied as he led Ford into his office, the door shutting off the majority of the workshop noise. In just three short days since we allowed the goblins to work on the assembly yard, they actually proved to be much more adept at working in the workshop. Seems like they are natural in this field, Ford asked as he watched ongoings of the dry dock assembly floor from the second floor window of the office. Any incidents? A few minor injuries and lost fingers at the start with the goblins, but we knocked some sense into them and so far they're doing well, Chief Matt replied, joining Ford at the window. Teams of elves, humans and goblins welding and bolting plates of steel onto armor onto the decks in the outer hull of the converted ship. We sealed the lowermost decks, turning them into watertight compartments, Chief Matt pointed out. The belt armor starts just above the waterline at five inches thick and covers to the gunwale. The top deck armor is covered with two-inch thick plates, not to mention that the existing wooden hull and the decks were also ready in place. The interior ribs and the structure of the ship will be braced and strengthened to allow the ship to withstand the recalls of the new three-inch guns that we will be putting in. Chief Matt gestured to the wireframe drawing on the table. The original plan was to put two three-inch guns only, but we decided to add an additional one in the middle of the structure, giving us a three-gun broadside. Will the guns be armored or turret or open air? Ward asked as he leaned over the plans. Can we have more 50 cal guns too? The three-inch guns will have the simple two-inch thick gun shield, Chief Matt replied. We only have so much time to work at the ship. As for the additional 50 cal guns, sure, we can bolt more mounts on them if you need more. Ford nodded. Okay, I guess we can only upgrade the guns when winter comes. So who's gonna captain the floating wreck? Chief Matt grinned. Floating wreck? Ford laughed. Me. You? Chief Matt raised an eyebrow. You're chief of naval ops. Well, well, I'm chief of naval ops of a single ship, Ford grinned. Besides, who else other than the captain has any experience commanding a ship? True, Chief Matt nodded. Well, if she's yours, you better look through the specs and memorize every bolt and nut on board of her. Chief Matt started to rummage through some documents on the table and handed over a thick stack of notes and papers. Start reading up on the new power plants and the magic heat exchange system that is installed. Also, I think you'd better start picking your crew soon, Chief Matt advised, and check with Petty Officer Letts on where is your new office going to be. I think you're going to need it pretty soon. Um, this is a load of studies. Ford frowned as he leafed through the stack of manuals, and most of these are just handwritten notes. 
Well, everything is just jerry-rigged and held together by grit, spit, and a whole lot of duct tape. Chief Matt laughed. Seriously, I won't recommend firing a full broadside till we have fully tested the trial of the system. That bad, Ford winced. I thought you braced the whole structure. Yeah, Chief Matt nodded. We did, but these ships are not built like our 18th century black powder ships on Earth. The strain by ballista firing on board the floating wreck is the most one. Two, ten of what the three-inch guns will be on the ship's structure. The steel bracing will help, of course, but just try not to fire all three guns at the same time, Chief Matt cautioned again. It might shake loose the structure, and you might end up breaking the ship in two. Damn, that's quite a scary thought, Ford sighed. How are the engines? Here, Chief Matt flipped through the stack of manuals and pointed at the one of them. Double-acting triple expansion reciprocating steam engine. It makes use of magic heat exchange systems to boil water and is linked to a series of double-acting cylinders of progressively increasing diameter. These cylinders are designed to divide the work into three or four equal portions, one for each expansion stage. We decided against using an aero engines to power the ship as the triple expansion engines have a smaller temperature range of reduced cylinder condensation. Also, the pressure difference is less than each cylinder, so there is less steam leakage at the proston and valves. The tuning moment is more uniform, so balancing is easier and smaller flywheel may be used. Only the small high-pressure cylinder needs to be built to withstand the highest pressure, which reduces the overall weight. Similarly, components are subject to less strain, so they can be lighter. The reciprocating parts of the engine are lighter, reducing the engine vibrations. The steam engine could be started at any point in the cycle, and in event of mechanical failure, the engine could be set to act very simply, and thus keep running. All these advantages outweigh the use of the current aero engines we have, Chief Matt explained, and the magic exchange system will draw the heat produced by the boilers and engine to generate steam, and it is fueled by mana stones, which we can easily farm from the dungeon, and we do not need massive fuel bunkers to store the mana stones. Nice. Ward nodded as he flipped through the flashy printed manual that handwritten notes scribbled in here and there. Single screw propulsion? Yes, for now, Chief Matt nodded. It's still new tech for us, so the experimental group down at the harbor had run some tests on it, and it is more or less works. More or less, Ford placed a stack of papers down. What if it breaks during high-stress maneuvers? That's what the sea trials will be all about, Chief Matt frowned. Look, we have only so much time, manpower, and expertise to research, build, and implement without some goblins or empire forces breathing down our necks. Joel, Chief, Ford raised up both hands. I'm not criticizing you. I'm worried that if crap breaks down and during combat, people die. Damn... Chief Mad rubbed his face. Sorry, you're right. There are so many projects to complete and everyone is expecting them to work 100% without any issues. Look, me and my team, we're not a miracle workers, Chief Matt frankly spoke out. Most of us burn out from the stress and workload, but none of our boys are complaining. I'm proud of them, he continued. I know every one of them misses home and some loved ones on Earth, but they know that they're stuck here forever and everything in this planet is trying to kill and eat them. But we can only do so much, Matt nodded towards the assembly floor and said, even working with the former enemies that want to eat them is breaking their nerves. I don't know how long anyone can hold on to their sanity for much longer. Chief, I know the stress everyone has here, Ford sighed as he watched the ongoing work of the ship. Look, try your best to keep your boys happy, huh? 
I do, Matt replied. I keep them busy as much as possible so that they won't have any idle time to think about other things. But this just can't go on much longer. I see what I can do, Ford promised. Once Project Ironclad is completed, why not give them some time off? We do have the R&R resort down by the coast. Yeah, I'll get them to go for a break, Matt nodded. Damn, I need one too. Yeah, I'll put you guys down for a week's vacation once we finish this, Ford grinned. I know where the captain keeps his liquor stash. Ha! I don't mind getting drunk for a week. Somewhere in the Goblin Sea, burning globes of fire hissed and spluttered when they impacted the churning sea, throwing up clouds of steam and smoke. The lead merchant ship bobbed up and down in the waves as the ship's mage forced the winds against the sails, desperately trying to increase the ship's speed. The large merchant ship's sole escort nimbly dodged a heavy broadside of ballista bolts and flaming catapult loads from the small fleet of goblin raiders and swung in against the wind, coming alongside one of the goblin raiders, and the ship shook with four heavy ballistas on board fired. The twelve kilograms of wood and steel ballista bolts were flung out at a velocity of over 45 meters per second and traveled for a short distance of 200 meters over the waves before depositing all their load on board the unlucky goblin raiding gallery. Screams and shrieks echoed across the waves as the vaults dealt their deadly damage to the occupants on board the goblin ship, suddenly tilted away from the chase and the other goblin raiders rapidly swerved to avoid ramming into the deep ship. Again, the captain of the sea stinger roared, a gold royal for each man who hits their target. Ah! The crew of the Sea Stinger cheered as they put their backs into reloading the ballistas, readying them to fire another bolt at the persisting goblin pirates. Captain, one of the lookouts in the crow's nest yelled, the wave dancer is making a run for it. Three raiders are on her tail. Curses, the captain roared. Bring her about. We need to keep those pirates off the wave dancer. Aye. The crew quickly started putting on sails while the helmsman spinning the wheel, turning the ship back to the wind. The agile ship leapt up to complete its turn and leapt forward when the wind filled its sails. Send a bolt to those cursed creatures, the captain roared again. Give them something to remember we are still here. The ship suddenly lurched as a bright, semi-transparent light ball covered the ship flared, and sparks of energy exploded over the sky. Lucky spell, the ship's mage cried out. The shield still got strong, no worries. Am, Captain Namu, the sea singer cursed. Buy your ballistas as they bear. Two gold royals for any gunner who hits a goblin ship. The gun and crew, encouraged by increased promises of rewards, worked harder at reloading their weapons, and the chief gunners carefully sighted their weapons before releasing the bolt, cursing as they missed. Just as the sea stinger slowly caught up with the three goblin pirates that were harassing the wave dancer, destroy those pirates. If our employer sinks, the show goes our pay, Captain Namu yelled. A screech screamed over the stinger, followed by a ripping tear of canvas. Almost immediately the ship slowed. A lucky bolt ripped the sails of the large gaping hole. Cut the sail down, Captain Namu roared. Curses, we're losing the chase. The remaining two goblin raiders chasing after the sea stinger eagerly bounced forward as the sea stinger's speed dropped, their top decks pulling up with giggling goblins hungry for blood. Prepare to repel the boarders. End of chapter. Chapter 194. A Good Place to Live and Die. The Colony Academy of Science and Magic. 
Elizabeth Ragnar, known as Liz to her friends, stepped carefully down the tiled hallway of the school which she was told to serve at. More like ordered, she thought that she had adjusted her pace to match the female human who was bringing her to her new accommodations and start her servitude to them. Her left leg felt itchy from the strange contraption that they had bound to her ankle. The blacksmith stating repeatedly to her that it would know where she was at all times and should she attempt any means of hostilities, the anklet would self-destruct with enough force to blow her leg away. The human blacksmith further demonstrated its capabilities on a wooden mannequin, and the wooden leg with the strange black anklet exploded spectacularly, much to her dismay. She tried sensing it with detect magic, and even applied her magic senses into the artifact, but nothing was found. But she admitted that the humans had treated her better than she had expected, except for the horrible light cell, where the white lights and voices haunted her. After she had agreed to serve the demons, no, humans, as they called themselves, they put her into a more normal cell, with a cot and iron bars imprisoning her in. Then the whole week was spent doing strange activities like questioning questions on parchments, which she found strangely a superb quality. She was taken in and out of the cell to another place where she was told to cast her most powerful spells at some mannequins spread out in the open field with strange markings on the floor. She conjured up a most powerful spell, an enhanced magic missile spell of 300 times, firing all 300 magic missiles at once and devastating the terrain but she noticed that the expression on the humans in grey and white clothes was barely impressed as they quietly watched and made notes in the flat brown tablets, making her feel like she had barely possible in their eyes. If she cast the same spell back at the capital, the spectators would be cheering and commenting on her abilities and her magic power. On the other days, creepy-looking soldier in those grey, strangely-cut uniforms would take her to visit tired-looking humans, who was called Dr. Sharon. The female doctor would start asking strange questions, like if she won something, will she take it using a soft hand or a hard approach? And all the while the strange, creepy soldier stood with her arms folded, watching her with a sinister eyes. She felt very uncomfortable under the presence of that soldier, and was actually relieved to return to her cell. Next, during the evenings, she was taken to a class with other people to learn basic English. There, she found Evelyn, who appeared to not be her usual self. Most likely, she was depressed with the death of Dante. Evelyn barely spoke a single word and just stared blankly at the board. The teacher called her to pronounce words and she just stood up and repeated what the teacher had asked without any emotion. Liz tried to speak to Evelyn, but Evelyn barely replied back, mostly in single words or with barely a nod or a shake of her head. Liz felt frustrated and wondered if the humans did something bad to her. Now she followed another female human into a school which they named the Academy of Science and Magic. She saw several students dressed in long, dark green skirts, pants, and white shirts with a similar matching coat or jacket, presumably the Academy's uniform. The strange and scary soldier that had taken her out of his cell and with a simple follow me had handed her a bag and clothes and other necessities and boarded the magical wagon they called a jeep, and he drove her here. He crudely listed down the terms and conditions for her limited freedom. She can only stay within the campus of the academy, leave the boundary of the academy without prior approval, will result in the anklet on her left ankle exploding. Any attempts to tamper with the device will result in the anklet exploding. Any hostile activities would result in the anklet exploding. Basically, 
He just told her almost every scary scenario that will result in the anklet exploding. The pretty short-haired human called Christine brought her to a building wing away from the main campus of the academy and said, This is the hostile area for the staff working at this academy. You will be living here for the time being till the orders come in for you. Th thank you, Sliss stammered as she glanced up at the brick-brick structure with perfect windows and tiny balconies lining the facade, thinking that her new environment wasn't so bad after all. You will take a role as an associate lecturer, which is to help the lecturers prepare for the classes' materials, Christine said as she led Liz up the stairs to her room. You will be dealing mostly with magical studies and also be helping out with magic R&D departments and tests and trials with regards to magical stuff. Liz frowned as she barely understood what Christine was saying like R&D departments. What was that? She wondered, but she kept quiet and just nodded along. She sort of understood the associate lecturer title, which would sort of be an assistant. Once you settle down and are capable of handling a class by yourself, we will promote you to a lecturer, meaning that you will teach classes by yourself. Christine continued before stopping at a door marked 209. This is your room and your keys. Wait, you meant that I'll teach a class by myself later on? Liz asked surprised, but I thought only magister-ranked majors could take students. We do not have that sort of requirement here. Christine replied as she leaned against the wall. As long as you pass your advanced English, maths, and fifth-level circle mage, and also worked as an assistant lecturer, or have prior experience in teaching, we grant the person a three-month probation in teaching. I see. Liz blinked her eyes in surprise. But age? As long as you're above eighteen, you can work. Christine continued to answer her question patiently. From what I read on your file, you'll turn eighteen before spring in a few months' time. File? Liz looked alarmed. W wait how did you know my age? Never mind. Christine gave a creepy grin, which sent chills down Liz's spine. You will get used to it later. Now put your stuff in the room. We'll still got a few places to go. I will show you the shower facilities as a cafeteria, the staff room, and the classes. Also, I will introduce you to the teachers that you will be helping out. Somewhere off the Goblin Sea. Put more sails! A marge yelled as he screwed as he held a wooden railing on the deck. His ship, the wave dancer, punched through the waves with a white splash and salt water. More speed! He glanced to the rear, seeing the escort ship he hired falling behind as its sails got ravaged by an unlucky bolt. Quick! While the sea stingers distracted the goblins, we must get away! Master! The wave dancer's first officer yelled out. All sails are up already! We've already got a full speed unless... Unless, a Marge narrowed his eyes, we lose some of the cargo, the first mate suggested. Lose some of the cargo, a Marge cried. You want to lose your head? No, oh, master. The first mate looked horrified and ran off away from the helm. Mal, a Marge roared. Make more wind. I didn't hire you to look pretty. The ship's mage sighed as he lowered his slim, soft hands down. Master and Marge, I already done my best. The sails can only take so much wind. Damn, Marge cursed. Wet the sails. The crew started to hoisting buckets and seawater up the sides of the ship and splashing the sails with the water, making the canvas wet. Wetting the sails down helps hold more wind as the canvas fibers swell up to thickness and moisture, and wetting sails is one way of decreasing porosity and hence increasing effective deriving force of the making the sails stand flatter. It's working, master! The first mate on the deck yelled as the ship picked up speed. 
The men were exhausted as they had to hoist buckets of water up continuously to the top of the masts and pour them down the sails, which the wind evaporated quickly. Master and Marge, look, the sea stinger! The lookout from the crow's nest yelled out as he pointed to the rear. Captain Nemu cursed as the ripped sails were chopped off by his crew, and suddenly a laughing cry could be heard. <laughs> a goblin smacked against one of the undamaged sails, his fabric cushioning him as he fell and slid down, bellowing sails like a child's slide. Landing on the deck while giving off a victory pose in the middle of the crew of dumbstruck sailors. Success! Kill it! Namu roared at the stunned sailors who reacted a second slower than the happy goblin who cut down two of the nearby sailors with a rusty blade, turning the deck slick with blood. Oh noes! Another goblin flew by, but it missed the ship and landed in the sea. Oops! Repel borders, Nabu cried again, as more and more doped-up happy goblins started appearing in the skies, launched by goblin catapults from the raiders closing in on felt-like sharks. Blisters! Kill those ships now! Captain, beware ahead! A lookout roared from above, gesturing wildly at the bow of the sea stinger. Nabu turned and saw one of the goblin ships chasing the wave dancer and turned about and was heading in a ramming course. Helmsman! Hard to starboard! Nemu yelled as the distance between the two ships closed. The helmsman desperately spun the wheel, turning the ship hard towards the starboard side, and the sea stinger groaned as it slowly turned. The oncoming goblin raider under the bow ram missed as the two ships passed just meters apart. The gunners on both ships didn't waste the opportunity, and fired their ballistas and catapults at point-blank range. Both ships shook madly as heavy projectiles impacted the hulls, the goblin ship floundered as two bolts punctured hard deep into its bowels, cracking the hull at the waterline, sending cannons of seawater into the belly of the raider. The sea stinger did not fare as well as the ship was just a light vessel. Its wooden hull, barely sixteen inches thick at the sides, the crudely built goblin ballistas had enough energy to smash through the thick hard wood. Three bolts fired from the raider as it passed. As the raider sat lower in the water, the goblin gunners fired upwards at a straight angle, and the three bolts exploded into the interior of the sea stinger. One of the bolts even upset the ballistas off its mounts, shattering the arms of the ballista and crushing several gunners under the weapon, while another bolt punctured the quarter of its length through the top decks, its melted tip gleaming in blood. The lower deck gunners and crews screamed as splinters the size of a man's arm exploded out into the wooden beams and hull as the bolts punched through the hull. The splinters acted like shrapnel and frayed everyone not protected, ripping skin and tearing body parts into bloody scraps in seconds. Almost immediately, a quarter of the crew of the sea stinger was down. Namu cursed as the deck under him quaked and peered over the railings and saw the devastation wrought by the goblin raiders against the side of his ship. Suddenly, the three-pronged hook hammered into the Namu against the raining. Shocked, he followed the rope at just attached to the hook and saw it came from a disabled goblin raider that was slowly drifting away but within range. Gods to seize! Here they come! End of chapter Chapter 195 UNS Float and Wreck Goblin Coast Far Harbor the loud wailing of a ship's horn blasted out as the UNS floating wreck left the mooring slips under her own power. 
Workers and staff lined the harbor watched as the converted armored cruiser slowly made its way out of the dock with puffs of gray smoke coming from a single smokestack. Commander Ford stood inside the newly built wheelhouse and watched the small bridge crew of three, manning the stations as they slowly piloted the ship out to open waters. Ford finally released the breath that he was holding in as the ship cleared the pier and was out into deep water. Most of the crew were from the original UNS Singapore crew, taking charge of the rest of the newly recruited elves and even a couple of goblins working in the boiler room. Ford picked up an old-fashioned handset and dialed engineering. Grayson, how are the engines and the boilers holding? Looking good so far, came back the reply. UNS Floating Wreck Engineering Boiling Room First Lieutenant Grayson returned the handset back to the war bracket. He was formerly in charge of the ship operations and maintenance on board the UNS Singapore and was recruited by Ford for the UNS Floating Wreck's executive officer. He left at the chance almost immediately, preferring a command position rather than working as an operations manager for the colony. Grayson watched the two goblins that were chittering happily next to the magic heat exchange system inside the boiler room. He kept an eye on the pressure gauges and another eye on the two goblins who wore cut-down work coveralls and leather gloves and tool belt armed with wrenches, spanners, and screwdrivers. One of Chief Matt's underlings, a black male, grinned at the sight of Grayson. Exo, don't worry about Bone and Razor. Those two are pretty cool. Grayson grinned back. Still, keep an eye on them, Eddie. Doesn't hurt to be extra careful. Petty Officer Eddie had been assigned as the chief engineer on board the floating wreck by recommendation of Chief Matt, and he was been handling his duties seriously. The two goblins, Bone and Razor, looked up at Eddie in awe, as Eddie's skin was dark chocolate, making the goblins yap about him being some rigging incarnate of some pagan god that they worshipped, and not to mention, being a tacky was more than icing on the cake to them. The two goblins overseas several valves and dials while scribbling something down on a clipboard and scrambling over to report to Eddie, almost kneeling and bowing. They instead threw the salute and grinned happily. Pressure good, heat good, plenty of steam, bone grinned, as showing off his broken tooth, while the top knot was tied into a piece of animal bone. Razor had a missing ear, reported next. Magics don't look good, plenty of magic, air is not too hot too. Great work. Eddie double-checked the recordings physically, comparing the numbers that they checked on the clipboards against the dials and grinned. All right, keep watch. If the steam pressure hits the red bar, remember to release some of the steam. Don't let the pressure build up too much. Aye, aye, chief. UNS Floating Wreck A dull grey hull of the floating wreck gently crested a wave as the siren bled on and off. Crewmen rushed to the action stations while division heads yelled at the men as through the stations. Ford stood inside the wheelhouse and watched the crew reacted to the drills. Several crew members rushed up to the three-inch guns and removed the oilskin tops covering the weapon. The couple of them started to unlock the ready ammunition lockers next to the guns and started removing shells, while the rest started to spin the cranks, turning the gun to the floating targets dropped overboard earlier by the ship. The gunners pried open the breech of the gun and shell was dropped in, the rammer shoved the shell into the breach and followed by a thicker circular wad of bursting charge, and the breach was closed and locked. Ready! The gun team stepped back, covering their ears, leaving only the gunner sighting the weapon. He raised his left hand to, to signal the weapons officer that the gun was ready to fire. The weapons officer stood on top of the wheelhouse, in the flying bridge giving him a 360-degree view all around. 
He turned back to look at gun number three and noted the raised hand. The officer picked up the headset and spoke. Captain, number one and number three ready to fire. Ford looked at his watch, timing the gun crew's readiness and speed. He turned to Grayson and said, Timing could be better. They took six minutes and thirty-nine seconds to be ready to lay the guns. Yes, sir, Grayson nodded. It's the crew's first time working on board the ship at sea. They normally just drilled on a simulated pop-up of the ship and guns on land. A few more drills like this, I'm sure that we can cut that time down to at least fifty percent. Ford nodded. I understand. Actually, it's not bad for a start. Grayson grinned. Don't worry, sir. I'm sure we got a pretty solid crew here despite most of us being landlubbers. Ford gave a laugh before he said, Tell weapons to give me three round rapid fire for each gun. Aye, rapid fire, three rounds. Grayson repeated the order and spoke into the headset. Guns, three rounds, rapid fire. The weapons officer, receiving the information, picked up another handset and passed it to orders down to the guns. Three rounds, rapid fire, fire! The three-inch 23 Mark I guns roared. The ship shuddered slightly from each recoil, and the gun crews started to service the weapons, extracting the spent shell casings, placing new shells and burst charges before slamming both the breech and locking it. The gunner laid her sights over the target and fired. The targets were roughly 400 meters away, drifting along the tide and waters. The shriek of the shells from number one and number three guns landed somewhat nearby the target, throwing meter-tall wave splashes. The second volley landed closer to the floating target, made out of a few barrels and a big red-painted rectangular board. The third volley also missed the target. One of the shells landed close enough to spend sprays of seawater over the target. Ford frowned as he watched the water splashing using the binoculars. Local fire control isn't very accurate, he commented. Yes, sir, Grayson agreed as he watched the artillery practice. Allow weapon to control the firing? Yeah, let's keep drilling them, Ford nodded. Tell the weapons to switch to central control of the guns. Same as before, three rounds, rapid fire. Aye, Grayson replied. Central control and three rounds, rapid fire. The weapons officer received the order to which the central control, and he checked the laser range finder mounted on a pair of powerful binos. He keyed in the numbers onto his tablet, their firing table and chart calculated the elevations and angles of each individual gun. He spoke into the handset, directing each gun, giving the elevations and the angles to set. The gunners quickly cranked the wheels to turn the guns to correct the elevation and angle. Raised the hands soon was seen by the weapons officer, indicating that the guns had laid and loaded. He then yelled into the handset, Three rounds! Rapid fire! Goblin Coast, Far Harbor. UNS floating wreck gently docked against the pier while the workers threw ropes over the crew tied the ship down. Ford stood on the gunwale watching the securing of the ship before the gangplank was laid down. He gestured to Chief Matt, who was watching impatiently by the harbour, and almost ran up the gangplank once it set down, followed by his staff. How was it? Chief Matt asked eagerly. Everything working as it should? Well, one of the two magic heat exchanger systems broke down, Ford reported, as they entered the wheelhouse. I think we need a mage on board to handle arcane stuff. I see, Matt nodded. What other issues are there? We barely topped fourteen knots running at full speed. That's two knots lesser than what you promised, Ward read out from the note, and we could only sustain that speed for 36 minutes before one of the magic heat exchanges blew. Lucky there wasn't any injuries. Matt turned to his staff and nodded. Got it. We'll look at it. 
Next, number one and number three guns are working fine, but I think we need to reinforce the deck more. Ford continued. The gun crews reported that the deck moved each time they fired. Got it. Next, Mac nodded. Steer controls feel sluggish like there's too much drag, Ford said. Also, I think number two gun can be installed. Sluggish controls and installation of number two gun, Mac frowned. Okay, we can do a once-over. The gun's performance... Ford grinned. Not bad. We managed to hit the targets we dropped over. I say with an accuracy of 40%. 40%? Matt frowned. The three-inch guns are pretty accurate. I know, but we're firing on moving targets on an unstable platform, Ford explained. Four out of ten shells hitting the target the size of a car is pretty good for a rookie crew, don't you think? True, Matt conceded. I guess more drills and training are required, yes? Of course. Ford looked at the crew being drilled by Grayson as they docked. Training and drills keep the crew sharp and deadly. Southern Sea of Isles. Fleet Master Dijon frowned as he watched pieces of wreckage and flotsam drifted up against the hull of his ship. Several of his crew were dredging the flotsam, trying to see if they could hook up something to identify the ship that had been wrecked or destroyed. Anything? Dijon asked as they walked back to the helm. Master Dijon, the first mate and the fury replied, we don't know what ships were lost here or who was fighting who. There are plenty of wreckages floating around, and these might have been caused by sea currents and waves, he said as he held a piece of broken wood, carefully giving it a once-over before he tossed it over the side. But it looks like maybe two or three ships' worth of wreckage. Order the rest of the fleet to close up and be ready for combat, and bring the cargo transport to the middle of the formation, the giant ordered. I want the faster ship to scud ahead. Aye, master. The shipmate nodded and started to bellow the signal boy, who was in charge of laying out the signal flags. Soon, a flurry of colorful flags arranged in certain order was flying from the tops of the sails. Dijon raised a telescope and watched the other ships in his fleet reply with confirmation flags, and the ships started to close in in a circular formation. The group of merchant ships carrying ore and grains for the rebels stayed inside the protective formation. The ships promised by Dijon to the rebels also took shelter inside. Master, at this rate, we'll reach Far Harbor in three days. The navigator spoke as he reviewed the sea charts. As long as the wind holds up and we do not meet any dangers. Dijon nodded and kept his hands behind his back as he watched the drifting wreckage and the flotsam slowly drift away. There was an occasional bump as a barrel or a crate hit the hull of the ship and he frowned, wondering, what has happened around these seas, and the only way to know is to see which ships fail to report back according to schedule. Calm seas and fair weather, he whispered softly to himself. What in the thirteen hulls is happening? End of chapter. Chapter 196. Your Navy. Skies over the Goblin Coast Southern Sector. The General Atomics MQ-242 Ally Reconnaissance Unmanned Aerial Vehicle hummed happily as its glider wings were deployed, allowing it to maintain a power-saving gliding attitude in the skies as it patrolled the designated sector assigned to it by its human masters. Currently, UAV Unit 03, nicknamed Aussie by its crew, was running an autonomous control, its electronic brain churning zeros and ones at speeds unmatched by anything in the world could rival. Its highly sensitive multi-spectrum optical suddenly picked up movement under it, and the electronic brain started checking its programming, following the correct lines of code, and dialed in its optics in the movement spot. 
It saw a cluster of tiny ships-like objects moving under the wind power and engaging in combat. In 0.2 seconds, the processor started to compare the references from the installed identification, friend or foe database. Comparing the hull shapes and sizes with known ships while at the same time a priority alert directive programmed in its core, fired an encrypted compressed 18-kilobyte communication data pulse to its controlling station on board the UNS Singapore. UNS Singapore UAV Control UAV pilot and sensor specialist Seaman Rodney was half-dozing off in his station. The bulbous front-heavy UAV control headset covered most of his head and weighed over 4 kilograms. He sat on his control chair, resting his head against the special neck support that helped take most of the weight of his neck. As he lay there for hours at a time with both hands holding onto the tight controls on either side of the cockpit chair, he had quietly set the program for the UAV to run autonomously and it would alert him should it detect anything out of the norm. It was a common practice done by the UAV pilots and the superiors normally ignored it as long as the UAV pilots don't ignore and properly check the alerts reported by the UAVs. Military regulations required a human operator to be overseeing the autonomous AIs at all times, but it was not really rigorously enforced most of the time. The United Nations Security Council had unanimously voted to not have fully self-aware AI constructs due to the French-China colony war of the late 2050s, when a nuclear-armed UCAV, unnamed combat aerial vehicle, fired a couple of 15-megaton mini-nukes on a French colony as the AI detected multiple hostiles inside the French colony, and its analysis was to destroy the colony to prevent the French colony expanding it into the forward-staging area by adopting a scorched-earth doctrine. Later, somehow, WikiLeaks managed to get access to and leaked the records and investigations and supporting data forensics of the AI, which fired the Serbian nuclear missiles. It reported that the AI's core had calculated that killing an enemy civilian population of over 100,000 to prevent the French from gaining a military foothold in the friendly territory, which has an 88.426% probability to change the course of the war towards the French advantage. The use of nuclear weapons was justified by the Chinese AI's core analysis, prompting it to make its own decision and destroy all infrastructure in the area and deny the French forces. The leak and the general disclosure of the investigation had a massive backlash on the Chinese government which prompted the end of hostilities between the two countries and also the 2061 peace accords banning the use of nuclear weapons on green planets and civilizations. It also started a wave of anti-AI sentiment and distrust amongst the populations in the outer colonies and also on Earth. Rodney jolted awake when UAV Unit 3 pinged him, a loud ringing designed to wake him the human mind continued to echo in his head, even after he shut the alarm down. He quickly accessed the data streaming in from UAV Unit 3, checking the live imagery and broadcasting directly. Crap! Rodney hit the alert button, which alerted the duty officer who came over and Rodney took over the controls of UAV Unit 03. Instantly, his goggles heads-up display interface turned blue and the connecting message text popped up. Once the link was established with the UAV, the blue interface faded away to be replaced by the view of the Unit 3's cameras, giving Rodney a sense of vertigo as he felt like he was a bird flying in the air looking down at the earth and sea. He turned his helmeted head left and right as Unit 3's cameras mimicked his actions, following his view, allowing him to see what was around. Rodney narrowed and focused his eyes on a spot under him, 
and the view zoomed in, allowing him to see the area he focused on. Microsensors and monitors lined the interior of the UAV control helmet, which scanned and monitors Rodney's irises for changes. These minute changes allowed the UAV pilots to control the UAV cameras like focus, changing the spectrums and even changing the target lock of using just their eyes. The UAV pilots had to train specifically to learn how to control their eyes and facial muscles to be able to pass the UAV piloting course. One of the reasons why most people do not want to play poker with the UAV pilots as they are very good at controlling their facial expressions. What is it? The duty officer of the day arrived next to Rodney's station and glanced at the screens displaying the views of Unit 3. Wait, are those ships? Yes, sir, Rodney replied as he deftly controlled the UAV to drop to attitude and trail the ships. Looks like they're fighting. Damn, those darker ships look like goblin raiders. The duty officer started to contact with the command bridge. Bridge, we got some situation here. UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters. Blake frowned as he looked at the list of reports coming in from the pirate attacks. How's work on the floating wreck? Commander Ford and Chief Engineer Matt looked at each other, and Matt spoke first. Well, we're still working on some teething issues. And the crew is being trained and drilled on the job, Ford added next. When can the floating wreck enter service? Blake asked as he looked up from the reports. Realistically, Matt frowned, I'd say at least two more weeks. Two more weeks? Blake shook his head and placed the tablet that he had been reading in front of Matt. Have you seen this? Six reports of sightings of pirates over the past two days within 200 kilometers of Far Harbor. Blake growled. Another two reports of pirates engaging with other ships spotted by UAV recon flights. That's a 400% increase in goblin naval activity in a week, and a 200 kilometers off Far Harbor. That's like within a couple of days sailing, Blake continued. If the Isles know that we cannot control the seas around our harbor, what do you think they will do? Chief Matt shrugged, while Ford gave a sigh and said, They will cease all future forms of trade with us. Yes, that is one of the scenarios that will happen, Blake nodded. Not to mention, we do not have a thousand UAVs to keep watch along the entire stretch of the coast. That's thousands and thousands of kilometers of probable landing zones for goblin raiders to drop off and attack our outposts and farms. Blake wrapped his table with making a point. Even the Air Force could not be everywhere to cover us. Well, Cap, Matt frowned, the thing now is the floating rent breaks down. We got no means to tow it home. And that's why we're running extensive trials to ensure that the ship will be able to operate in a combat environment, survive it, and limp home on its own power. We don't need an indestructible ship here, Blake replied. Ward, I know this is under your jurisdiction, but we need to have some form of presence out at sea. The number of pirates running around, frankly, is quite alarming. Blake rubbed his chin. If we are unable to stop the pirates, I am sure that it will come to bite us in the rear in the future. Couldn't we send the Air Force to bomb the Goblin City? Matt asked. We could, but the planes have not enough fuel to make it back home, Ford answered. We could use the Valkyries, but they are getting overworked now. Yes, Commander Tommy reported that for each hour of flight on the Valkyries, they have to ground it for maintenance for four hours at least, Blake said, and the Valkyries are being tasked with transports for the time being. Therefore, the fight with the pirates will fall on your shoulders. Blake looked at the two officers who grimaced. It's a tough war, but I got confidence in you two. Sir, we technically could launch the Fochin wreck with pirate suppression duties, but I will advise limiting the range within 50 kilometers of Far Harbor only, 
Matt replied. While we do that, we could make some sort of barge or tug using the plans from the Project Fast Attack. So, at least we have some way, at least, to tow the ship back or even conduct rescue work should the floating rent break down within our waters, Matt suggested. Blake turned to Ford, who raised an eyebrow. Your Navy, your decisions. Ford rolled his eyes before he nodded. Do it. For the time being, I have an Air Force engaging any pirates within range, Blake said. Far Harbor also needs an airfield so that they can support the Navy of the future. Got it, Ward nodded grimly. I'll talk to Let's. All right, you two, Blake grinned. Enough of the gloomy faces. Once all of this crap is over, I've got a nice bottle stored up for you guys. What do you say? Aye. Somewhere in the Goblin Sea, mad laughter woke Captain Amu, and he found himself tied upside down and dangling over the rafters of a dark hold. From the creak and the sway of his surroundings, he knew that he was in a ship, and when splitting headache passed, he slowly noticed that it wasn't alone. Several other figures were tied up and hung up in the same manner as him. He wasn't sure if they were alive or not, but he was pretty sure that he got caught by the goblins as the laughter and screeching cries were made by them. The hold smelled bad and rotten decay. Light penetrated from the cranks between the hulls and from a tiny mage-light glowing on the other end. Crates, barrels, and other objects laid haphazardly all over the area, and from the sounds of laughter, the goblins must be celebrating. Suddenly, shrieking voices were heard, and a flood of light reappeared and reignited the throbbing headache of Namu. The hatch leading above decks opened, and several child-sized goblins appeared as they excitedly grabbed the nearest tied-up body and started to drag it up the steps, which woke the man who started to groan in rough treatment. They're gonna eat him! A voice suddenly spoke to Namu from the side, surprising him. The hatch slammed shut, and the bright light of the laughter got cut off. Namu wiggled himself, making his body rotate to face the direction of the voice. So we're just rations for those cursed creatures, Namu asked as his body dangled by the ropes, turning him around slowly, and the person who spoke earlier came into his view. Yes, a roughed-up sailor with a puffy face came into view of Namu. He was also tied upside down, swaying with the rise and the fall of the goblin ship. His eyes were void of any life as he said, I saw what they did to the rest. First, they cut your limbs one by one, and while you're still alive, he whispered, they drain your blood and make blood sausages with your guts that they remove from your slit bellies. Then they roast your limbs in front of you and chop off the top of your skull off and eat your brains raw. The man shrugged as he recalled the grotesque scenes he witnessed. Above deck, a scream rang out long and hard, followed by giggles and sounds of children like laughter. End of chapter Chapter 197 Good Intentions UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters Lieutenant Tabor knocked on the hatch and entered. Sir? Close the hatch, Blake replied as he saved his documents on his computer. Sit down. Now, Tabor, let's start. Blake finished up his work and turned his attention to the intelligence officer. So, as of the past week, the mage girl and the hunter girl has not displayed any sign of rebellion. Tabor started his report. We will continue monitoring their activities, but I suspect that the hunter girl might have some kind of mental block or issues. Blake nodded. Keep them under your eye. Yes, sir, Tabor replied. Here is a list of the executed prisoners. Blake took a deep breath before he picked up the soft coffee document. Is this the only copy? No, sir, David replied. I have the other, only copy under lock and key in the secured vaults. 
Blake nodded and leafed through the lines of text. 268 goblin prisoners executed under the context of being unfit for civilized duties. They have gone too far, feral, to be able to integrate into any civilized society. Four forest trolls and two rock trolls also terminated, as they were also deemed too feral and dangerous to release. Blake continued. The bodies were given to the hospital for autopsy and harvesting of the adrenal glands. Sixty-eight Empire prisoners of war executed for war crimes, all deemed too dangerous for release. Havar said coldly, Another thirteen citizens in prison under the Cetacean Act, all of them pro-Empire supporters. Thirteen? Brake raised his eyebrows. That's all. I thought they might have more. There are some, but most are just normal people with complaints and minor grievances, Tavor replied. We interviewed them and under the pretext of doing a simple survey, and they were released. What do you plan to do with the thirteen hardcore Empire supporters? Blake asked mildly. Under the Sedition Act, Sedition Act and Speech, and Printing, Publication, Sale, Distribution, Reproduction, and Importation of Sedacious Publications that undermine the administration of the government and deemed as traitors and criminals, Tavor cited the law by heart. Such as being found guilty will be punishable by death by a firing squad or life imprisonment. Then you better make sure that you investigate thoroughly, Blake leaned back in his chair. Yes, sir, Tavor nodded. As for the human, I have recruited and trained several native operatives and have dispatched them to the town of Forledge. If that all goes well, then we will start seeing results in a couple months, Tavar said. The agents will be using covert signal radio sets for comms. Hammond, human intelligence, Blake sighed. Damn, sometimes I really wish for advanced technology with all of our spy planes, satellites and drones. I did take the liberty to see if we can access two satellite survey probes that were launched before we landed here. Tavis said, No luck. We would need a very powerful signal booster or a direct laser to the probes as they orbit overhead. Then we would need to hack into the systems as we lost all the codes and accesses when we crashed the ship. Tavar added, The IT guys are still trying to retrieve and hopefully restore the damaged ship data core. Blake sighed. But good work. It's my duty, sir, Pavel replied without any expression. Sir, I also like to inform you that Claymore One, under the orders of Initiative and Lieutenant Joseph, have taken out a number of slaves that were showing dissent. Oh, really? Blake was surprised. How did you find out? Lieutenant Joseph reported the incident to me, and I covered up the disappearance to prevent anyone from finding out, Tavel replied. I see, Blake nodded. Is that all? Yes, sir, Tavel replied again. This meeting is adjourned, Blake stood up. You know what to do. Aye, Captain. Tavar stood up and saluted before exiting the cabin. Blake watched Tavar close the door before he picked up a sack of documents and reread everything. By the time he finished the whole report, it was late, with the ship's clock showing 23.47 hours. Blake dropped the whole report into the laser shredder, watching the paper report turn yellowish and then black before turning into a shredded ashes when the shredding jaws spun. He sighed heavily and poured his finger a scotch and dwindling liquor store before downing it in a single gulp, feeling his insides burn. He placed his glass down and picked up his communicator and sent a text to Shireen. I miss you. Northern Forest Hydro Dam Power Station Corporal Bartley frowned as he walked towards the makeshift pen for the windfall family. He saw two uninvited guests looming tall and imposing over the fence, and one of them seemed to be licking her chops at the wolves. 
What are you two doing here again? Bartley asked as he stood before the two dragons, Blue Thunder and the female red dragon, Rustras. Um, just showing her the sights, Blue Thunder rumbled good-naturedly. I heard that the marines had adopted some wind wolves, so we came to see. Didn't you guys see enough on the past two days? Bartley gestured around him. You're scaring the pups. Really? Blue Thunder gave a surprised, wide-eyed look at Bartley as he tossed one of the wooden wolf pups into the air in front of his limbs, making the wolf pup bark in happiness. They seem to like it. Kids, Bartley shook his head, but the mothers don't like it, especially when your lady friend is drooling there. I'm not drooling, Ristros straightened her body, posing as majestically as possible with a massive serpentine body. I, I'm just, um, hot. It's sweat. No, I mean, um, ugh. Why do I need to explain to a meat bag? Rolling her eyes, she pouted her large lips and turned around in a huff. Bartley shook his head and went to check on the mother wolves, who welcomed him with licking his hands. He pushed away the thick fur of the wolves that checked their wounds and gave a nod, patting the sides of the wolf and said, Good. Looks like you two are feeling well. Wee! Blue Thunder tossed another pup up, while another wolf pup gnawed on his wings. You don't have to worry about them, Bartley assured the two mother wolves. Blue is a good guy. <laughs> Blue Thunder looked slightly abashed. You sure know how to make a dragon feel happy. I think you are here for the food, Bartley retorted. Aren't you on active duty now? I am to escort and keep her highness company. Blue Thunder puffed up his chest proudly. Besides, Marine Chow is better than Air Force. Please don't let your commanding officer hear that, Bartley whispered. Anyway, why come here? You can bring her to the airbase or even Camp Alpha. I think it is something to do with the negotiations. Blue Thunder scratched his head while using his wing to fan the puppies playing at his feet. They want to recruit me or something, Ristras gave a snort. Her command of English was almost magical, most likely due to her racial traits or something, as if I am some sort of object that can be easily bought. Blue Thunder gave a look at Bartley and did a very human shrug. Oh well, she wanted to stay around this countryside and agreed to keep her powers down and not burn down the forest as long as we could keep her uh, fed. So here we are. Blue Thunder gave a big grin and started to play with the wolf pups. I think that you wanted to play and eat more than anything. Bartley frowned. Blue Thunder, who acted like he didn't hear Bartley's words. When's lunch? Ristras suddenly asked as she pushed away one of the pups that had tried to lick her. I'm hungry. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor. The crane rumbled and the operator expertly lowered the three-inch gun down over the superstructure of the floating wreck. A cluster of workers and techs reached out and grabbed the ropes and gently steered the gun into the number two mount. Once the gun was in place, the ropes were untied and the team of welders started to weld the gun into the deck while others bolted the mountings into place. Commander Ford stood inside the cramped wheelhouse and watched the ongoings on board the ship. How long more before we can take her on another sea trial? Lieutenant Grayson looked at his tablet and said, Work is still ongoing to retune the engines, while the number two gun should be installed within the hour. I say, before noon today, we should be able to depart for another round of tests. Ford nodded. Supplies and fuel? Currently, we have two weeks' worth of food and water already stored in the new refrigeration holds for the crew of 85, including 11 officers, Grayson reported. Ammunition for the guns are not loaded till before departure. We are currently carrying 79 kilograms of waste manor stones, 
Grayson continued, these will be used for the magic heat exchange system and the Dragonite fuel bunkers are 20% capacity. The magic heat exchange uses waste mana stones as they were either badly chipped or leftover parts that have been cut. Due to safety concerns, the fuel and ammunition will only be loaded after the yard work and before departure only, Grayson said. Ford nodded and turned around when a sailor knocked on the bridge door. Sir, Air Force Commander Tommy is here to see you, sir. Where is he now? Ford seemed surprised by the sudden visit and gestured the sailor to lead the way. Grayson watched the ship. As Ford walked down the gangway, he saw the skinny ex-pilot looking up at all with the ship, which gave him a proud sense of ownership. Tommy, what bund blew you in here? Ford? Tommy turned his gawking and grinned, shaking Ford's hand happily. Nice ship you got there. Thanks. Ford grinned back and led Tommy away from the bustling noise of the dry dock. This way. Ford led Tommy into a side office, and they sat down and catch up with each other, area of expertise, before Tommy grinned and revealed why he came. Look, I know the pressure is in the Navy, and now that the pirates are pillaging all over the area, Tommy said, and the proper airstrip on the far harbor is still months away from completion. My AF-1 Cobras could land and take off from a flat glass field if needed, Tommy said, so I am dispatching a squadron over to support you. I will put them under the Navy command, but you will need to pave the ground for the planes to land and take off, and also provide hangars and bunkers for the ammunition, fuel, and spare parts. Thanks, Tommy, Ford nodded gratefully. That would help a lot. I will get the construction crew to prioritize a basic airfield for the planes. No worries, Tommy smiled. There is one more thing. I got a new experimental plane and I'd like the Navy to take it. New experimental plane? Ford frowned. Why would the Air Force give it to the Navy? Well, it's just a simple redesign of the existing Cobra, Tommy said as he took out his tablet and transmitted the file over to Ford, who opened the file and whistled. A seaplane version of the Cobra? Ford looked at the planes and specifications. Yep, the AF-1NC Cobra. Tommy cheerfully presented his new plane. The wheels are replaced with hollow, airtight floats, giving it the ability to land and take off from the water. This is still an experimental phase for this aircraft, Tommy warned, so its max performance and stats are still under review and testing, but I think that this will help the Navy in establishing its presence over the ocean. Damn! Ford's eyes glowed as he laughed. I think the Marines are going to be pissed. We took all three-inch guns and now we have even have a new plane to play with. Please don't break it. End of chapter Chapter 198 Vacation South of the Goblin Coast, Goblin Sea, the Fury and her escort steadily made headway, their sails filled with cold air blowing towards the continent as the season was changing. The ship spotted a massive sea creature out beyond the Goblin Sea, the creature hunting something as a deep wailing cry could be heard from afar. The sailors made gestures to their guards and prayed for the sea creature would not come closer while the fleet master John ordered the fleet to bear away from the creature, keeping their distance from it, lest they attract its attention. Could the previous wrecks be caused by that creature? The Fury's first mate asked to John while they were inside his cabin. Did John frowned? Maybe, maybe not. Well, it'd be wise to still keep the men at ready, John said. But master, the crew has been on cold rations since yesterday. The first mate not daring to look at John. 
the fire in the galley would be dousing during the ship actions, and the men had to endure leftover cold porridge and the hard tacks for meals. They are nervous and grumbling. Issue them another ration of myrrh, De John ordered. The alcohol should keep them happy for a while, but only for those on their breaks. I master. The first mate gave a broken-toothed grin and went off to issue an order. De John sat on his chair and opened up a magically locked box and grinned to himself. Inside the box was a silver necklace, encrusted with various precious stones and a centerpiece of a large heart-shaped emerald stone. He admired the necklace under the glow light and was pretty confident that the princess would like it. He snapped the box shut and restored the spells on it before keeping it locked in his sea chest. Soon I'll see you again, John smiled as he strolled back out of his cabin. Very soon. The colony in City Hall. Princess Shireen sneezed and rubbed her nose, wondering if she caught the chills. The weather had turned cold lately as autumn slowly seeped its way over the land. She was busy ensuring that the farmers had changed their crops and have the proper tools and equipment. Not only that, she had to add a new fishing department to hunting and forestry sector, which would regulate the new fishing industry that is getting set up. Shireen sighed at the amount of work that she has to do and wondered why the humans have to be so detailed, even though she acknowledges that there were good points at being so detailed. I think I need to hire more help, thought Shireen as she rubbed her eyes and yawned. Suddenly, a soft chime sounded from her computer and the message notification popped up. She clicked on it and smiled warmly as she read the message. I miss you. Goblin Sea, Far Harbor. Captain Blake walked into the gangway of the UNS floating wreck with Princess Shireen to much fanfare from the crew and the workers. Blake stood at attention and saluted the flag hung over the radio mast and asked, Permission to come aboard. Commander Ford, with his ship's officers and crew turned out in the finest, stood at attention and saluted Blake. Permission granted, sir, Ford grinned and gestured to Blake to follow him. Do you need to make it so formal? Blake asked as he nodded and greeted some of the sailors as they headed into the ship. I wish I had a band, or had time to train some new crew to play something, Ford laughed at Blake's expression. Seriously, it's a good for the crew. Welcome aboard. Ford gave a quick tour of the floating wreck. Now the ship is roughly there. I say another couple more sea trials and a few more fine-tunings and debugs. The ship will be fully operational and ready for combat. I don't think we have that much time, Blake replied. We picked up a convoy inbound to Far Harbor. They are roughly a day's sail away, if the weather holds. Damn, Ford frowned. I hope that we have a few more days to work out more bugs on the ship first. Well, you know what to do, Blake said. Take her out and provide an escort for the Isle convoy. Ford nodded. Got it. I will get the ship ripped and ready to depart by today. I heard you got a new toy from the Air Force. Blake changed the topic. How is it? The float plane, Ford smiled. Well, it's good to have some form of aerial support. The couple of prototypes Tommy dropped on my lap so far are doing great. We built a simple floating dock for the planes using spare wood logs and barrels. Ford said. Refuting is a bit, I mean, uh, refuting's a bit tricky. Ford gave an apology to Shireen, who smiled back. We don't have a proper facilities to store the fuel tanks and refueling equipment out into the sea at the moment, so we are reduced to refueling by hand, using canisters one by one. Ford explained. Once the water hangers for them are built, we can do it more efficiently. But so far they've proved to be pretty handy, Ford added. As long as the seas are calm enough, they can take off fairly well. 
Good, Blake nodded. Good initiative by Tommy to give you the seaplanes. Well, I hope to see some form of carriers in the future. Carriers, Ford frowned. If we can solve the manpower issue, that wouldn't be a problem, I guess. Once we master proper shipbuilding techniques, I'm sure we can build some. Great, I leave you to your work, Blake grinned. And for God's sake, you are the chief of naval operations. I expect you to lead the navy, not be in the front lines. Ford laughed. Well, where is the fun in a desk job? Besides, if I don't take a chance to be a captain now, I probably won't have the chance in the future. True, but watch yourself, Blake reminded him. You're a senior officer. We can't afford to lose you. Well, Navy warfare doctrine which I'm writing will engage the enemy from long range, Ford winked. We just stay far away and pound the crap out of everyone. It's beautiful, said Shireen as she stood before the stretch of pristine clear water, her bare feet buried into the white sand. Blake smiled as he held her hand and watched the wind blow her hair messily. You are beautiful. Shireen blushed and pouted. I'm talking about the sea. <laughs> I know. Blake pulled Shireen down onto the sand, cuddling her in his lap. The security detail that discreetly escorted them melted away somewhere, giving the two of them some privacy. We need to spend some more time together. I know, but it's so busy at City Hall, Shireen replied as she leaned into the warm of Blake's chest. We need to go on some dates more, Blake declared. After all this is over, I'm thinking of having a vacation with you. But can we afford to take some time off? Shireen sighed in Blake's arms. There are so many people depending on us. A vacation is good, Blake replied. Helps recharge the mind and body. If not, then we'd be too stressed out. Stress, Shireen frowned, unfamiliar with the word. Yes, stress, Blake smiled. Stress can make you fat, hair loss, bad skin. Shireen startled as she clutched her tummy, followed by her hair, then her face at each word Blake said. Her eyes were big and round and stared worriedly at Blake, who burst out laughing at her reaction. Really? <laughs> yes, in a way. Blake gave Shireen a tight hug till she squeaked. That's why we need to take some time to relax. Yes, Shireen nodded vigorously. Let's go on a vacation. Goblin Sea, 179 kilometers from Far Harbor. The heavy twang of the ballista arms sounded loudly next to Fleet Master Dijon as he stood next to one of the deck ballistas. The sweaty bodies of the gun crews toiled and worked the cranks, turning gears to pull the wooden reinforced arms and ballistas back. Dijon stood on the side and observed the arc of the heavy ballista bolt flying into the distance and saw a white splash next to the goblin galley. The gun chief yelled, Give me three points to the right. The crew chief lifted the rear of the ballista and reset its position in a pre-marked notches and the wooden decks. Finally, the arms were cocked back fully and four men lifted the heavy bolt and slotted in a carefully into the firing bracket. Stay clear, the gun chief roared. Ready? Fire! Another heavy twang sounded and the bolt shot out, flung by the still vibrating arms of the ballista, arcing its way towards the pursuing goblin ship. The bolt landed close to its mark clipping the side of the goblin galley, shaking the whole ship and sending a small spray of lethal wooden splinters around the impact. Give me one more point to the right, the chief roared as the crew labored to lift the blister again. The John grinned at his crew. Good shot! Extra myrrh for you men! Yeah! The gun crew roared out happily, and with renewed vigor, they worked to reload the blister again. Kill!
the John turned his attention to his fleet and watched these experienced ships warming up into a battle line and ballistas firing and the dark bolts hitting the goblin raiders as they tried to close in. He frowned as he was the second pirate attack made by the pirates over the previous day. What is happening here? He wondered as he watched another bolt skewered another goblin gaddy, sending tiny figures and wood flying. Why are there so many pirates at this time? His fleet had formed a flying V with the merchant ships protected inside the V. A total of five battleships, including his fury and another two scouting sloops of war, which were harassing and wounded the stricken goblin raiders at the flanks. Five large triple-masted merchant ships, each carrying 200 tons of metal ore and livestock, followed by two beaten-looking single-masted sailing ships, with their decks stacked full of fishing boats. Those ships huddled tightly together between the majestic warships like little checks, and the warships kept the marauding pirates at bay. Oi! Sails ahead! The lookout of the crow's nest yelled down, and the boy pointed forward. The John frowned and turned away from the side and followed the direction that the boy was pointing. He pulled out a foldable telescope and adjusted the view until a blurry image jumped to his eyes. Dozens of dark grey square masted sails could be seen in the distance. The John waved his first mate and handed him his telescope. What do you see? Hmm. The first mate peered into the scope and frowned. Square rigs, looks goblin, looks like they're trying to box us in. Curses. The John snatched the back of the telescope and peered through it again. Damn, greenskins. Ordered the fleet to tighten the formation, the John ordered. We will break through the enemy blockade at full speed. Order the sloop captains to go into independent action, the John ordered next. They are to head to Far Harbor. And any ships left behind is to rally at Far Harbor with all possible haste, the John ordered. May the gods of the sea protect us all. Skies over the Goblin Sea, 175 kilometers from Far Harbor. See, Verum 1, the pilot hit the press talk button on his mic. To Poseidon, current position at point beta 6. I'm seeing a naval battle ongoing here over. Poseidon, roger that. Stay over the AO for observations over. Roger that, the pilot gently tilted the floating plane towards the and dropped his altitude to get a closer look at the ongoing sea action. Poseidon, this is Sea Verum 1. This are the Isles Convoy. They're under attack by a large fleet of goblin pirates. End of chapter. Chapter 199. Shock and Awe. Fleet Master John cursed again as he spat a mouth of blood across the gunwale while wiping his mouth. Leaning against the gunwale, he took into the situation of his surroundings and found most of the goblin pirates were dead or dying. Some of the crew were tossing the bodies of the foul-smelling goblins overboard, while others laid down on the deck weeping in agony as their lifeblood slowly slipped away. The ship's surgeon and his assistants busied themselves over the wounded and dying, casting healing spells and applying salves. What's our situation? Dejan asked the first mate as the bloodied man panted over his way. The first mate with a torn scalp and his body full of sticky, drying blood reported in pants. Master, we managed to fight off the goblin borders. We are still tallying the losses, but we have many wounded. See to the men, the John nodded and dismissed him anyway. He turned towards the stern and glanced out to sea, seeing that his feet getting tangled up with the goblin pirates. Where did they learn to be so cunning? His fleet had formed up hours before and were charging forward with full speed directly into the waiting goblin ships. 
His flanks were hounded by more goblin pirates exchanging ballista fire with his ships on the sides. As they could not maneuver out of the encirclement, Dijon decided to use the larger and heavier hulls to plow past the more fragile and smaller goblin galleys, but he did not expect the goblins to have a trap set up for that. These fleets slammed into the goblin ships, a couple of the goblin galleys were smashed aside, the weaker hulls splintering and tipping dangerously over, spilling goblins and stuff into the dark sea. Suddenly, Dijon's ship and fury shuddered wildly, and it came to a sudden stop. The sudden stop sent its crew flying across the decks and into the wood bulkheads, and some even went flying off the ship and into the dark waters. Dijon found himself sailing through the air, and he was flung off the poop deck and over the stairs down to the top deck. Luckily, he managed to land on a pile of ropes which barely broke his fall, suffering a dislocated shoulder as he landed awkwardly on his shoulder. Roaring in pain, he climbed up to his feet and stared around in surprise. While his crew recovered, he peered over the edge of the ship and found a glowing magic formation underneath the waters, which had trapped his ship. He quickly checked the surroundings, seeing that every warship in his fleet caught in a similar trap, while the merchant ships desperately attempted to maneuver away from crashing into the rear of the trapped ships. Shrieks, screams, and drums were heard as the goblin galleys, making good use of the disoriented sailors, to close the distance to boarding range. Make ready to repel boarders, the John roared. He grabbed a nearby crewman with his good hand and ordered him to help reset his dislocated shoulder. A loud crack and a harsh growl, the John gingerly rotated his arm and shoulder while he downed a heating salve, feeling the numbing pain slowly fading away. At arms! Come on! On your feet, sailor! Giggling goblins soon flooded the sides of the fury as two of the galleys crashed against the hull. Grappling hooks and chains lashed against the side of the ship, and the crew desperately hacked and sawed away the grapples. The goblins dug into a small pouch made out of beast leather or even elven skin and then laid a handful of ash-gray powder covered in specks of evil green glitters. Some throw the powders into the mouths as they chewed the dry powder while inhaling the power-inducing drug. The drug, once inhaled into the goblin system, almost immediately they felt no fear and pain. The colors and sounds of the surroundings became clearer and more vibrant. Her pulsing blood veins and the long legs looked though so delicious and tempting. Even the screams and cries of the long legs sounded so funny and pitiful. <laughs> the goblins giggled and cackled madly as they stormed up the grapples. Some, in their mad rush, up fell off despite that. They laughed more and ignored their injuries. They attempted to climb again up to vertical hull of the long-legged ship. <laughs> John slashed at dozens and dozens of dirty green fingers crutching on the railings, chopping them off like sausages on a chopping board. Suddenly, oh, he roared at his ship mage, break the magic formation. Yes, master, the mage cried back as he waved his staff in a series of complicated gestures as he weaved a high-level dispel spell. Cover the mage, the John ordered his crew, and more goblins swarmed up the decks. Protect him, he has our only chance of breaking out of the spell. A goblin gave a mocking cry as it cut down one of John's crew in front of him, and John's saber separated its sword arm away, sending the goblin toppling back in giggles. This but a scratch. The goblin leaped forward with a good arm without wanting to claw John, who sidestepped away and hacked down, chopping the remaining arm off a laughing goblin. <laughs> Just a flesh wound. The goblin giggled madly. Me bites your legs off. 
John black-slashed the lonely goblin head off and ended the tirade, and moved it to help provide support to the besieged crew, protecting the mage. Greater dispel. The mage cast a disenchantment magic, and the magical shackles holding onto the fury vanished, and the ship slowly picked up speed while dragging the goblin galleys along. Push the goblins back, John roared. Destroy the grapples. Their ships are dragging us down. The crew, with renewed vigor, slammed with a vengeance into the goblins, who thought it was pretty funny. The melee turned to a deck slick with blood and gore. The goblins died laughing, while the sailors died screaming and crying. The last of the lines trying the fury to the glass goblin galley parted under the repeated assaults by the crew had the fury gaining more speed as a strong wind filled the undamaged sails. John took a scoop of cool water being handed out and buckets to the crews by the cabin boys and felt refreshed. He glanced out his fleet and wrenched in pain as he saw one of his flagships catching fire. Thick black smoke billowed out from the hulls and the hungry flames licked the sails. Before long, the burning mast, unable to hold its weight anymore, folded inwards and the ship drifted as a burning hulk. Damn the goblins to the thirteen hells, John roared. Gods of the seas, take them to hell. Master, trouble, someone yelled from the decks and John turned his attention over, his anger temporarily forgotten. More sails. What? John made his way past the sun crew and looked at the telescope. No way. How many ships do the damn goblins have? John fumed. Arm, the ballistas, clear the decks, signal the rest of the fleet who can still move. I want them to form up on the fury, quick. The crew quickly worked to clear the deck of bodies and clutter while the signal flags flew up. A few warships then managed to clear the magical traps, turned towards the fury while the merchant vessels and the two unarmed schooners had managed to dodge ahead of their escorts as they had managed to avoid the magical traps set by the goblins. The two sloops of war had heroically charged in to protect the merchant ships, keeping the bulk of the goblins focused on them as they pursued the fleeing merchants. Master! The first mate cried out. Our ships can't handle another magical trap. The merchants will drag us down. We can still turn back and retreat. We can't abandon the merchants still. Dijon frowned, not to mention the capital lost. If the crew gets picked up by the goblins, they will suffer a fate worse than death. But master, the first mate frowned, we lost a third of our strength just from that ambush. Now there is another fleet in front of us. We must turn back to the isles. The merchant ships turned desperately away from the new goblin fleet as they spotted them, angling with the wind, hoping to cut away from the blockade. Dijon looked worriedly at the merchants ahead and back at his reforming warships. Only four out of the five of his ships survived, and almost all badly affected by the trap. The merchants will not make it, Bursmaid cried, as the experienced eye gauged the distance in the wind. The goblins will cut them off easily. The John cursed and hammered the railing with his fist, angry that he was powerless to stop the goblins. What good is being a fleet master if he couldn't destroy the goblins attacking his ships? Suddenly, one of the goblin galleys appeared to shatter into flames. Small gouts of flames and grey smoke rose from the affected galley. A rumble and a faint thunder crack followed by the explosion of the galley, and that was not all, as another galley went up in flames at the same time. The John stood dumbstruck as he tried to understand what was happening. The goblin fleet appeared to be in disarray as they turned left and turned. The seeming trying to avoid something and another galley blew up again. What's happening there? Master, 
What is that? The lookout cried and pointed. The John frowned his pointing arm and the telescope, and he saw a strange object with smoke coming out from it. Sunshine appeared to glitter off its surface, and there were several small pops of smoke appearing on the outside. The heaven is that! John frowned as the strange grey-shaped object appeared closer and closer at the speed that boggled his mind. He glanced briefly at the Goblin fleet and saw that they weren't any surviving ships, and he felt afraid of the unknown. What could have destroyed a pirate fleet of over fifteen ships in a few turns of the glass? A low, moaning cry seemed to come out from the strange grey monster as it approached swiftly. It was fast enough to the bow wave could be seen from the bow and a large wave trailing in its stern. As it came closer, it looked like a ship, but without any masts and sails. Figures could be seen moving on its deck and Dijon tensed up. Ready, blisters. Ahoy, the ship! A voice suddenly blared loudly and clearly across the sea between the strange vessel and Dijon's feet. We are from Far Harbor. What? Dijon looked stunned. What sorcery is that? Fleetmaster to John, I'm Lieutenant Joseph. We met at the reception. A voice called out from the strange ship. We are here to escort you. The scattered isles fleet slowly reformed back, and the strange grey ship came alongside the Fury. De John stood at the railing and observed the rebel ship with an experienced eye. The ship's length looked similar to their own twin-masted ship, but other than that, the ship was totally different. His Fury was longer in length and rode taller in the waves compared to the grey ship. A large forecastle sat in the forward mids, and the ship was a strange-looking barrel that had a flat, squarish flat covering. Another similar brong barrel sat on top of the deck, while a tall, sailless mast rose up midship just before a strange funnel-like tube gave off a smoke and steam. The John gaped at the strange ship and stepped out the deck and found the ship was covered in metal. A metal ship that sails without wind and can float in water. What kind of magic is this? End of chapter. Chapter 200. Beginning of a new era. The John stood stock still as he stared at the short-eared creature before him, dressed in a grey uniform and wearing a flat, sloping hat. His hand darted to his saber pommel, only to find Lieutenant Joseph's hand gripping his in an iron grip. Lieutenant Joseph shook his head while preventing the Isle Fleet Master from drawing his saber. The British sentry marines stood at the ready, their hands on the flap of their sidearm. Dijon looked around at the tense look coming from the soldiers and he relaxed his hand away from his saber, putting his hand up in surrender. At ease, people, Commander Ford waved the marines to stand down. Let him keep his weapons. Joseph nodded and stood at the side, placing his hands behind his back as he stood at parade rest, eyeing Dijon's actions carefully, while the two marines relaxed and returned to their spots. Welcome to my ship, Fleetmaster Dijon. Ford gave a disarming smile. Welcome aboard the floating wreck. UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Blake closed the comms line with Ford and came to the floating wreck and traced the position of the ship in the tactical plot. The blinking green dot on the map showed the current location that was being relayed back to the computers by the UAV performing overwatch in the area. Telemetry from the UNS floating wreck surface radar had several other pings blinging on the tactical plot, which the sensor operators had tagged them as ships from the Isles. Other unknown contacts were also tagged and a Sol Sea Cobra flying in the area was being vectored to investigate. Blake keyed in another line or his calm to Princess answered shortly. Hey, the floating wreck has met up with the Isles' convoy of ships. They will be arriving at Far Harbor tonight.
I got it, Shireen replied. I'll be on my way over to City Hall after I settle everything here. I will be there to meet them when they arrive. Okay, be careful. Blake ended the call. OPS, issue a task for the Air Force Command, Blake said. I want a full flight of Cobras and Far Harbor for security. Aye, Captain. Goblin C, the Fury. Bleedmaster John stood on his deck staring at the metal ship that was pumping away in front of their formation. His crew was making signs to ward off the demons as their eyes fell on the demon-powered contraption. John rubbed his tired face and sighed. He had wondered why the rebels were suddenly so strong and able to survive in the wildland. Now he knew why, as they had received the help of these strangers. They looked like people except that they had short round ears. Other than that feature, they closely resembled people. But are they demons, as rumors said? He thought back to the conversation that occurred on board the demon ship. The strange short-eared spoke in common tongue with a strange accent, and Dijon noticed that the other people seemed to jump at his every command. Was the power of these demons so great that the rebels had to obey the command so rigidly? The demons said as they came to escort the Isle ships and offer friendship and protection as long as they were in these waters. Dijon frowned as he wondered why the rebels still needed to purchase ships from him if the demons were so powerful to even construct a ship out of metal and sail without wind. The rest of the conversation was a strange demon was mostly about cooperation and ways to communicate. After that, Dijon was dismissed and he returned to his own ship in a daze. Now he watched the metal ship sail forwards without any sails, easily keeping ahead of his fleet, and he wondered if he had made a deal with the devil. Goblin C, UNS Floating Wreck Bridge Ford settled back on his chair and listened to the list of reports coming from all over the ship departments. Another rupture in the high-pressure pipes and the armor plates buckling on the forward aft of the ship, Lieutenant Grayson said. The wooden under-support for number one gun has cracked under the firing of the weapon, Grayson continued, reading the reports inside. Other than all of that, the ship is seaworthy. We can still push her up to fourteen knots per hour if needed. Keep it steady, four knots, Ford replied. Their mild ships couldn't make more than four knots. Just stay ahead of the escort them back to Far Harbor while we see what repairs we can do for now. Make sure number one gun can be fired. Make its repairs a priority. Ford yelled after Grayson, who left the bridge. Captain, the radar operator called out. Severum 1 reports multiple sightings of goblin raid ships. Where? Ford asked as he sat up alert. North, northwest, forty kilometers out, the operator reported. It's a cluster of unidentified surface contacts that we have on the radar. The radar was taken from the dwindling UAV spares and installed on board the ship. Ford stood over the transparent map board where the radar operator had drawn a red X of the sightings. He did some mental calculations and gauged that the goblin pirates would intersect their current course within three hours of their current heading. Tell Burham 1 to keep tabs on their movement, Ford replied. Notify me once they are within ten kilometers. Aye, Captain. Hours later, a siren blared throughout the UNS floating wreck. Action stations, repeat all personnel to action stations. The crew, having drooled rigorously over the past week, quickly and professionally arrived at the fastest possible time and manned their stations. In the horizon, dozens of grey sails appeared in a tiny line, like magic. Ford lowered his powerful binos and said, Comms, inform the fury that enemy sighted, bearing in from the port side. The operator nodded and switched the loud hailer and started broadcasting a message across the sea. 
Following that, the Fury ran up sails and colored flags, and shortly after, the rest of the fleet formed into two lines. The warships formed the outer line closest to the approaching pirates, while the merchants and non-combatants stayed in another line, staying away from the fighting. Ford nodded. Looks good. They are pretty skilled. All right, let's show these islanders what our baby can do, Ford grinned. Grayson, take us out and engage the enemy at half range. Aye, aye, Captain, Grayson replied excitedly. Helms, give us full speed, bring us to port, keep our distance at two kilometers away from the enemy contacts. The floating wreck suddenly surged forward, leaving the rest of the island ships behind in its wave, its speed climbing up and holding at fourteen knots, closing in the distance between the two fleets rapidly, much to the surprise and awe of the islanders. The ship charged forward with a navigator who was calling out the distance to the pilot and the helm controls. Now, Ford ordered, turn ninety degrees to starboard. Now, Grayson yelled, ahead, slow. The ship groaned as it tilted and its side of the rubbers forced a change in direction, making a large turn before it slowed down, and its broadside of guns facing the line of goblins. Guns, give them hell. Independent fire, Ford commanded. Aye. Independent fire, and the guns of the floating wreck roared. The empty shell casing sprung out from the open breach, and smoke followed the casing out. The loader, holding a 5.9-kilogram shell, dropped it into the open breach, and another shoved a 0.56-kilogram propellant charge behind it, shoving both into the breach before slamming shut and locked. The gun commander yelled, Clear! And everyone stepped away while covering their ears, and opening their mouths yelling, Clear! The gunner, having laid the gun sights, pulled the lanyard on the gun rod, throwing the 5-kilogram shell out at 503 meters per second. The barrel jumped back in its hydraulics and dampened the recoil away. The high, explosive shell screamed its way over two kilometers of open sea and impacted against the wooden hull of the goblin galley. The impact triggered fire rune wafers on the nose of the shell touched each other and ignited a 3.62 kilogram charge of black powder and mana dust. Immediately, everything around five meters around the impact point in a spherical wave was vaporized by the explosion. The shock wave grew out and turned nearby bodies into mush and broken bones and further cracked the wooden hull and beams. Seconds later, another HE shell landed in the same vessel and totally obliterated the galley. The floating wreck cruised slowly forward as its guns constantly fired, sending rolls of thunder over the stunned Isle Fleet behind. John glued his eyes on his telescope in shock as he watched the impossible havoc caused by the demon-powered metal ship. Each clash of thunder seemed to signal the death of an enemy, and at such a range and accuracy. In the time his fleet caught up with the demon ship, there were only pieces of floating wreckage and dirty smoke over the sea area and one-sided massacre. Was this how the small group of rebels defeated the thousand-strong Empire army? The John thought. Master! The first mate stood in horror at the scene. What are they? What powers are those? Is it magic? I... I have no idea. De John found himself tongue-tied, and he couldn't understand anything either. Even the ship mage was shaking in both fear and excitement upon seeing those powers up close. Suddenly, a low buzzing sound rolled over from the skies, and everyone looked up and saw a strange oblong object, with what appeared to be wings circling overhead. Crew yelled out in fright, and some grabbed crossbows to defend themselves. The strange flying object seemed to wobble in the air as it lined up towards the metal ship, 
before it came roaring straight down and hit the water, bouncing up and down against the waves before coughing sounds could be heard and the roaring ceased. It floated on the water next to the demon ship, and the ship closed to it before something like a crane was lowered over the strange flying thing, and what appeared to be a person riding the flying creature climbed out and took something from the crane and exchanged words with the crew and the metal ship before he ducked back into the flying creature and the roaring started up again. The mind-boggling flying thing rode the waves and charged off, seemingly to time its bounce into the air by hitting one of the waves before it flew off into the skies. What is that? The crew was shaken badly by all the events today. Even fighting sea monsters and pirates could not rattle a veteran crew, but after having dealing with a metal ship and a roaring flying thing, the crew went crazy. Gods have mercies! Demons! The first mate looked at Jason with a horrified expression. Master, are we still going to follow them? Are we dealing with demons? Are they the ones that destroyed all the rest of the ships that we encountered along the way? I... John looked down at the pieces of floating wreckage hitting the side of the Fury's hull, and his brain seemed to have shut down. He could not process all the new things he saw and found out today. Demons? Are these short years friends or foes? What sacrifices had the rebels made for these demons to be granted all of these strange powers and weapons? If the rebels with these powers and weapons could stand up against the strongest empire here, what would the future hold for these lands? What would he see happen if we followed them back to Far Harbor? These thoughts raced through Juzon's mind. I... I think this is the beginning of a new era. End of Book One End of Chapter And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.